This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is sponsored by Siberia Bar and Hotel on Belmont Street, Aberdeen. Located only 30 seconds walk from the nearest bus stop, taking supporters to Potodri for free on match days. Siberia Bar and Hotel is open seven days a week, all year round. Come and join them in Aberdeen's biggest and best beer garden. And even better, head to the bar and quote the phrase ABZ Pod, that's ABZ Pod, for a £3 pint of Foster's, £4 pint of Retty or £5 pint of Fierce any day of the week, including match days. Come on you Reds! It's Wednesday, and you know what that means. Welcome to episode 62 of the ABZ Football Podcast. I'm Gary Scott. Joining me this week, as always, it's Gavin J. Baxter. Gav, how's it going? Yeah, that's right. Graham Steele is not with us this week, so we know what happened last time. Graham was not here to supervise us, keep us uh, on the leash, so to speak. So uh, get ready for some tangents. Yeah, But otherwise, I am good, thank you. Lovely stuff. In a week that saw Dundee United take first prize in the Scottish Statement League. Let's be honest, that one's not going to be beat this season, is it? Um, Unless Jim Trainer has got his typewriter out at Ibrox again, I think it'll be pretty hard to beat, yeah. It could only have been better if they'd slipped the word concomitant into it, <laughs> I think. <laughs> um, a week that saw St. Mininside featuring Declan Gallagher and Curtis Main show that Celtic can be beaten. And poor old Matty Longstaff finds that League 2 in England is still just a bit too shit for him. Oh, what's that about? Uh, his Colchester team got beat again yesterday in their second bottom League 2, and he got hooked after 70 minutes. That's a shame. That is a shame, isn't it? Anyway, it's another busy week on the ABZFP as we take a look back at our dismal 3-1 defeat to Hibs in Edinburgh in the SPFL Premiership on Saturday. We take a look back. All the news from AB24 this week, along with our regular Lone Watch feature, and we review the women's team following their 2-0 defeat at Spartans. And then, after the break, and Gav, let's be honest, we're pretty pleased with this one. Well, we're all very pleased, but I know that you're particularly pleased about this capture. I'm very pleased with this one. Um, It's the latest in our line of interviews with Dawn's personalities of past and present, and this time, it's part one of our conversation with a true legend of Aberdeen Football Club, a man born and raised in Aberdeen before eventually going on to play for the club for two seasons in the mid-70s, scoring a hat-trick in the League Cup semi-final against Rangers in 1976, part of the team who won the League Cup the same season, and then returned to the club to become co-manager of the Dons in 1988 alongside Alex Smith, leading the team to a cup double in that glorious 1989-90 season. It is the one and only Jockey Scott. But first, Hibs 3, Aberdeen 1, SPFL Premiership, Easter Road, Saturday, the 17th of September, 2022. And after last week's postponement of the home game against Sevco because of circumstances, the Dons travelled to the capital for the first time this season. One change from the starting lineup from last time out in Dingwall, Duke making his first start for the Dons in place of the suspended Leighton Clarkson. 
and a return to the squad for number 99, Christian Ramirez. The Dons lining up in a new look 4-4-2 with Ramadani and McCrory anchoring the midfield. Hayes and Bajowin on the flanks with Duke and Mayovsky up top. And it took only four minutes for the Cape Verdean to make his mark. Nice interchange on the left flank between McCrory and Colson before the on-loan Middlesbrough man flung in a decent cross, which Duke somehow managed to flick up and over Marshall into the far corner. A dream start for the visitors, but it was the home side who reacted best. Hanlon having a goal ruled out for offside before Hibbs had a strong claim for a penalty after McCrory clearly handled the ball in the box as he tried to clear a long ball into the box. Hibbs again going close from a free kick, Porteous heading over before Anthony Stewart found his way into the book for clipping Campbell's heels just as he was about to be played in on goal. Liam Scales picked up a booking of 43 minutes for a, let's call it, robust challenge on Campbell. And the game turned a minute later, Scales and Porteous tangling at a corner kick. The Hibs player managing to get the better of the referee here by dragging Scales to the deck and making it look like a foul by the on-loan Celtic defender. Penalty awarded, a second yellow card for Liam Scales. Boyle sent Roos the wrong way. And that was how we went in at halftime. The Dons still making an immediate change just prior to halftime. Povara coming on forward, Duke, with Ross McCrory heading back to centre-half. We'll come back on to that change, I'm sure, later on, Gav. That and a lot more. Into the second half, Hibbs should have been a goal up within the opening minute. Campbell's cross ball cut out eventually by Roos Coulson, then replaced by McKenzie on 55 minutes before Roos had to act quickly again to deny Campbell at the near post before Roos then pulled off a fine double save, first to cut out a cross ball from Porteous before then springing up to deny Newell on the rebound as the home side began to turn the screw on an Aberdeen side, struggling to get a hold of the ball. It was just a matter of time and Hibbs did eventually take the lead on 62 minutes. Cadden threading a through ball to Campbell who had all the time and space in the world to fire a shot home from 14 yards. And 11 minutes later, it was all done and dusted. Campbell prodding home his second after McCrory's attempted headed clearance dropped for the Hibs man ahead of Roos. The Dons should have pulled a goal back on 75 minutes. Richardson with some good play and his cross ball found Miofsky in the centre of the goal. Six yards out, but he got his finish all wrong and fluffed his shot wide of the post. Marley Watkins, remember him? And Shaden Morris came off the bench for Bajowin and Richardson with 10 minutes to go, but to no avail. The game fading into a 3-1 win for the home side. The Dons' horrendous away form continues. It's now December 2020 since the Dons had a league win away from home that wasn't at Livingston or St. Johnston. That one coming at Kilmarnock. Now, with results elsewhere over the course of the weekend, the Dons moved down to 7th in the table on 10 points. On the data side of things, grim stuff this week. Possession 64% to 36% in favour of the home side. Hebs with 25 shots to Aberdeen's 5. 8 of those from the home team on target. Only 1 by Aberdeen on target. The goal from Duke. Expected goals 2.80 to Hebs. 2.66 for Aberdeen Gav um, your thoughts on that one a really really disappointing afternoon in the capital yeah I mean um, I think this is the overwhelming overriding feeling is yeah just bitterly disappointed again it's uh, a game where we get ourselves by hook or crook whether it was deserved or not we get ourselves into a good position in the game we get the lead it's a good goal from ourselves um I feel we have a lot 
um, in the way of our makeup to be a good counter-attacking team when we're in the situation of being a goal up. But, you know, through, I think, a poor refereeing decision, certainly the game changes completely. And then at that point, it's, um, again, kind of same old story of not being able to stand up to a challenge in the in the second half. Um, yeah, much like much like Motherwell, like Ross County. And yeah, now Easter Road feels like it's a, a missed opportunity to get some points on the board and, you know, really cement our place in the, in the top half of the league. Let's um, we'll go through a lot of this, I guess, in, in a little bit more detail now. But um, first and foremost, squad depth again is really coming to the fore here, isn't it? You know, with the sending off, and we'll come on to the penalty and the sending off later on. But the sending off leads to something to push McCrory back into centre half once again. Um, this will be probably the scenario we have to go with against Kilmarnock after the international break is over. Because I'm, I'll be surprised if we end up getting. Anything in terms of scales as a second yellow card being overturned. I don't think there's any real precedent for that taking place. Um, it's The squad depth is really a massive issue. And it's what we've all been worried about for quite a period of time since the summer window closed with a lack of coverage at centre half, particularly on the left-hand side. I think it's a valid concern that's been mentioned by many people online. Um, if having seen the impact of not having Ross McCrory in the midfield uh, versus him in being a center, center back. If we're not going to consider Jack Milne for that position, why is Jack Milne still here and not out on loan? I couldn't help but think today, you know, uh, you kind of go back to, to David Bates and you sort of think to yourself that I accept that we maybe didn't get the target we wanted in August, maybe come in and provide that competition. It seems to me like it w- would have been naive to let David Bates go without someone coming in before uh, he were to depart. Um, you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Um, David Bates was always a very different scenario to Christian Ramirez, for example, You know, which has been very public. Uh, David Bates was in and around the group uh, in the League Cup. And then when the Legia Warsaw story came up, that was him gone until he eventually departed for, for Belgium. But if we could have maybe spoke with him and said, listen, David, you know, we know maybe it's best that you move on, but the reality situation is we need someone to provide experienced coverage. So let's just keep going. Let's get this through. Let's get through to January, and then we'll reevaluate things at that point. At that point, David Bates might be able to have a chance to come in and prove Jim Goodwin wrong. You never know. Um, but yeah, certainly. I mean, we, it's been talked about plenty of times, and it's the first thought that I had when I saw that Liam Scales had in fact been sent off. That right now we're we're handicapped for this game with the 10 men, and now we're going to be handicapped for that game against Kilmarnock. It's the double jeopardy thing we talked about before. We lose probably our best centre-back, and in turn, we probably lose our best midfielder as well. It's definitely an interesting one with regards to Jack Milne, isn't it? I mean, he's been on the bench, I think, pretty consistently right the way through the league campaign and in the League Cup as well this season, which does beg the question, if he's good enough to be on the bench, then why are we not giving him a chance? I'm seeing some people kind of like asking the question again tonight around you know is he just in the squad for the time being to gain experience being involved in around the first team i'm seeing some people asking you know, is he slacking in training I, I very much doubt that's the case i mean i think goodwin is very much the kind of manager that if you're not at it in training there's no way you're finding yourself in the squad at the weekend but there's a valid question there isn't there if, if, if you're going to put him on the bench he's got to surely be ready to play if you want to keep him in and around the first team set up to gain that experience, you can still do that while having him out on loan. Mm-hmm. 
he simply needs to go to a part-time team where they train twice a week and he stays the rest of his time at Aberdeen. So, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be really taking that on board really as a, a valid reason for keeping him around. But as you say, not playing him. I think the big issue with Milner is going to be that he's a very much a work in progress as far as a centre half is concerned because he's a cent- he's come through the ranks as a defensive centre midfielder, was out on loan at uh, it was Brechin, wasn't it last season? Yes, didn't play a huge amount at Brechin last season, and then he came back. I think it was Neil Simpson spoke about it. it was in January we pulled him back again. There's interviews there with Simeon that where they think because of his build, I think probably more than anything, they believe there's a centre half in waiting there and that's what they're developing and it's a huge ask to ask somebody who's played in a certain position for pretty much his entire youth career and basically go actually we fancy he's a centre half now and, and pull you back and he's only really been practicing so much you know training for that role now for about nine months tops it's a huge ask for a kid to come in and do it but at the same time it does go back to the question about if he's if he's good enough to be on the bench then surely was yesterday not an ideal opportunity to to give him a chance I would say so. I mean, the thing as well there is that whenever he has played in defence for the first team um, in the group stages of the League Cup, he played on the right side as well. So, I mean, you're potentially... We've seen more experienced players struggle with that adjustment to to the left side when you're a team that are playing out from the back. That, again, kind of brings back the question for me about, you know, the decision to let Mason Hancock go out on loan, who um, I know we played him at left back, but he's been identified i think and i think he's i think he's playing left back for our both he's playing left back for our both but he was left back he was playing on the left hand side of the center half at um, elgin last season yeah he's had experience he's growing up as a yeah. left-sided center back he is a guy that could provide coverage in that position um i feel like we've had options and we've made some maybe not the best decisions in terms of players we've let go and players we've brought in i think as well i mean i don't know about you but it struck me yesterday that um, you have an obvious—I well, say obvious—but you have a you have a substitute available on the bench who can play left, who is left-footed and could potentially play left-hand side of a centre half in Jack McKenzie. Um, now I know that you've got your thoughts about Jack McKenzie after what happened as well yesterday, but the reason I would throw out, especially for a game like yesterday, is hips are not particularly physical up top. So I don't think you have to worry so much about it being a case where you can have an experienced battering ram number nine just like pulling on to somebody like McKenzie for example for for the game I th- I think there was an option there that we could have gone with uh yeah um I think I'm on record we, we've <laughs> talked a lot about where McKenzie his best role potentially could be because I mean I'll put my cards on the table now I've got severe reservations about Jack McKenzie um if we want to be a club that play European football and challenged for trophies and try and win as many points as we can in, in the SPFL Premiership. Um, I could never see him as part of a back two. I just couldn't see it. I get your point about maybe Hibbs won't be the, bring the physicality, but I just, I don't think the defensive nous is there. And I think a centre-back pairing of Anthony Stewart and Jack McKenzie is... I, I'm only looking at what we had as options, so yes. Yeah, no, I get, I get that, but I mean, yeah, I'm just thinking, like, is that... Is that a solution or is that just a new problem? Because <laughs> um, I, I would have reservations about even playing a, a left-sided centre-back um, in, in a back three. Maybe that's mm. my inherent distaste for the back three coming through there. Um, yeah, I I see where you're coming from, certainly. But I ain't buying it. I think as well, the thing that's 
almost most most frustrating about yesterday is that it's feels like to me the first game in the league this season i'm pretty sure it actually will be where we have got up and running early doors like a goal within four minutes um it's the earliest we've scored this season i'm pretty certain certainly in um the league anyway i'm trying to think we may obviously score against wraith in the cup but it'll be the earliest goal we've scored in the league so far this season you know we've been bemoaning how slow we've been at starting games in recent weeks and it felt like well there we go that is the absolute perfect start against the hip side who let's be honest as well are not very good um, and have been struggling themselves. And you think here's a great opportunity to really kind of get the fans on their backs as well, given the start they've had to the season. And we just like, it was really weird. I think for five minutes after the goal, we looked okay. And then we just completely seemed to shit the bed. And it was a really weird game from that perspective. I know when we did the build up, I know when we did the preview last week that we'd kind of um, highlighted the fact that Hibs have been, very possession orientated this season and very um very good in terms of actually um building territory and keeping territory up the pitch so this maybe shouldn't have been a massive surprise to anyone who actually listened to what we did last week but i thought for me the the fact that we got a goal up so early and just really failed to capitalize on it was it was really criminal yeah like i said in the intro i feel like we have the makings of a team that could be a very effective counter-attacking side just with the sheer amount of pace we have um yeah. It kind of, for me, is a little bit reminiscent of when we were at kind of our peak under Derek McInnes, where we had a very good counter-attack. We were a very good team if we went 1-0 up early doors because mm-hmm. we could sit in and absorb pressure and then hit teams on the break. The unfortunate thing is our team uh, still struggling with the old uh, with the old uh, being difficult to score against uh, thing. Um, I think I've, I'm, I won't pretend otherwise. I didn't see the game. I was away yesterday. But um, I saw the highlights. I saw there was an opportunity where um, I think Vicente Bajawin gets the gets the ball on the right side and puts an across that Ryan Porches thing eventually kind of turns over the bar. Yeah. Um, it's, again, moments like that where maybe just that little bit of extra quality is what we need in those situations just to really, really capitalize. Because, yeah, like you say, it's it's a really, really good start. It's a great cross from Hayden Colson. It's a fantastic bit of improvisation by Luis Lopez, the Duke himself. And yeah, just to not press home that advantage, like you say, against a team that, I mean, it sounds silly saying it now, given they just beat us 3-1. But I mean, <laughs> but it's, it's true, they're not it's, good. It's Hibs, and it doesn't matter, like, in my life, it doesn't matter who the players are, it doesn't matter who the manager <laughs> is, it doesn't even matter who the owner is, it's just Hibs. There's a mentality there that they're just not particularly strong in their uh in their mentality and yeah to kind of just I let guess. them off the hook let them it, off that's what we did we let them off the hook yeah so like to let let them kind of take the uh to take charge of the game and to turn into a very hibs dominated match just yeah it's it's frustrating it's frustrating as hell i think as well the thing that really concerns me and i've seen a few people talk about it today is where was again we'll talk about what happens after we go down to 10 men but even before that point it felt like we just were willing and happy to let Hibs just come at us. And after the after the penalty and after the sending off in particular, it seemed like we had a real soft underbelly to us, like a real lack of belief that we could actually get anything out of that game. It won what it's still won one at half time. And that I think is the thing that concerns me the most. Cause I think when we saw the players that were coming in the door in the summer, there seemed to be a real 
change in mentality it felt to me anyway with some of the players we were bringing in and that's I think what concerns me most about yesterday is how easily we were rolled over in that second half in particular I think back to the fact that the week before at Hibs's last home game was against Kilmarnock Kilmarnock had um, Ash Taylor sent off after like 10 minutes and from what I saw of that game and from everything I read about it Kilmarnock really put up a good fight against Hibs at that point whereas it felt to me that it felt inevitable to me that we were going to get beat yesterday as soon as the red card happened I couldn't see us standing up and fighting to 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 get anything out of the game and that's the thing that concerns me most I think of yesterday's performance more than anything else I mean by that point in the second half I was home listening to it on the radio and it's just yeah when you know you find out that it's a penalty and they've scored and we're down to 10 men I did think this has got the makings of a really of a really long um afternoon and then they tease you I think we made it to about 25 minutes or so and then uh of course Josh Campbell scores uh to make it 2-1 uh, which is a horrendous goal from an Aberdeen perspective. Oh, uh, uh, we were gonna, I was going to touch about the defending later, but we'll be doing. Yeah, it well, uh, we'll we'll um, we'll talk about the yeah the sort of the mentality. I think Graham is not here. I'm not exactly sure where Graham is. As he's on speak. holiday. He's on holiday. That man is always on holiday. By the way, he is, isn't he? How many holds does that guy get? Is he like a social media like influencer, like in the spare time? Because that's the only reason <laughs> I can explain. <laughs> so I don't, know what, I don't know what he's influencing, but I can imagine he's out there. So like Graham's whole thing is actually he doesn't own social media, but he really does. He's like a secret influencer. I like yeah, this idea. It's under like a whole load of like pseudonyms, you know. Yeah, what would he what would he be after, Jake? What would he be trying to influence? Like you know how the guys at um oh, what's the name of the, the boys that are down the road from you? Um Oh, House of Botanicals. House of Botanicals. Like it won't be doing that, obviously. He won't be getting involved in that sort of shit. But what do you reckon Graham will be trying to free freeload? Well, he absolutely friggin' loves those apple sours pints. He does, but I can't see him trying to do that with the Vault City guys. Oh, I reckon it's going to be something much more mundane, like knee support straps. Knee supports. <laughs> His legs are usually in tatters after fives. They so... are, in fairness. And those are his own words, that's not mine. In fairness to Graham, he does run around that pitch for a solid hour. He d- Apart from last Thursday, which was more like walking pace football, if I'm going to be <laughs> honest. Uh, we'll... Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll interrogate him on this no let's keep going Gav, later fuck it. tangents is what we're all about it's tangents what is what we're all about um i don't know like proper men's aftershave <laughs> which will smell of what just like like, like nothing like it smells like a mechanics toolbox <laughs> wd-40 just gives himself a wee splash of that in the morning <laughs> nothing with even like a hint of like fruit or flavor or like that of shit. course no no, uh, no just that's... right down the middle um i don't know what else could he do i don't know you've known him for longer than i have what's i know but graham's like an enigma from this perspective i'm not entirely <laughs> sure what he'd be trying to freeload um car insurance yeah that's fair um just him like phoning up admiral and being like i'll i'll highlight you on my social media like insurance boy b-o-i not b-h-o-i <laughs> not b-h-o-i well maybe that's what he was today graham's far too respectful young man for that kind of power why maybe clapping his hands that's what he was asked to do <laughs> <laughs> anyway let's get back to the events at easter road yes events at easter road um where were we how how bad it was i think we were about to talk about the second goal and the defending Oh yeah, let's let's do it. Um, goal two in particular is just a fucking like that's the kind of goal we can see at goals. 
speak for yourself. When I say um, we, I mean the team I'm on. Um, that has brought back all kinds of horrific flashbacks to last year where I'm not even sure we can see that it goes bad as that oh, last season. Oh, we Gav. did. Oh, we did. Oh, we did. Remember, um, was it Alan Forrest scoring for Livingston? Oh, Livy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where I think he picked up the ball in the middle of the pitch for about 20 yards out from goal with no one yeah, anywhere near him. Yeah, but see, like, I, I don't think that's as bad as yesterday's because that's just a, a ball of the top and we get completely done, right? Yesterday's worse because they're built... They build up the play for ages. There's a, I think I tweeted, there was a hole the size of Robeson Quarry between Stuart and McCrory. Like, it was horrendous. Horrendous stuff. The problem, I think, comes... Like early doors, I think I think it's Cadden who breaks forward from the mm-hmm. defense, and you've got Miofsky like kind of tracking back, but not really. And you've got Bajau and kind of in no man's land from a defensive perspective. To be fair, that's where Bajau spent most of yesterday. I'm sure we'll come on to Vinny we will very, come on very to Vinny. soon. And then it's um it's clearly Polvara who is marking Campbell. We'll come on to Polvara as well, I think. <laughs> I almost don't want to. I think uh, people have piled in enough as it is. Uh, but then again, we have a responsibility to our listenership to deal with the difficult, difficult <laughs> topics, namely being college. What was this? What, what was the award you won again? Oh, um, the, I nearly uh, called it the John Heidenreich trophy, <laughs> but that's not right. <laughs> I'll find it. Carry on. Um, yeah, I, I think he is clearly marking um, Josh Campbell. Anthony Stewart seems to be following the number 99 for Hibbs. And then Polvara feels the contact from the 99 and then decides to go follow him. And that's what leaves Josh Campbell uh, on the 18-yard line within the width of the goals completely unmarked. I mean, that's that's not a goal that we've conceded because we're down with 10 men. That's a goal we've conceded simply because people are not concentrating and doing their jobs. And yeah, it's... Horrendous, horrendous goal to concede. Um, it's the Herman Trophy. It's what um the Herman, Herman. Munster Trophy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think the John Heidenreich thing will be a very niche reference to a lot of people. But um, if you get that one, hit us up on Twitter again. I'm sure that somebody will. If that's a reference to a equally bleak time in the <laughs> sports entertainment universe. I love how we can still do this every week. We can still get some fucking nonsense reference. And anyway, never mind. Um, yeah, goal two is bad. Goal three is is not great either, is it? Let's be honest. Um, I well, can't I mean, say if Ross McCrory thought he was at the other end of the pitch. Well, um, this is um, where my reservations about your idea about putting Jack McKenzie at centre back would be as well, because <laughs> if there is one guy who should be able to see the clear danger that I think, I mean, who scores? Is it Campbell again that scores? Campbell the again, yeah. Uh-huh. If there is one guy who should be able to see the danger posed by Josh Campbell. It is Jack McKenzie, and he just stands there. It's unforgivable. Um, never mind, never mind. You know the the build up and the way that the hipster wins the flick down. I mean, it's just yeah, it's horrendous all around. Again, if anyone at the club just wants to give a listen to our pod, we can point out the fact that Boyle and um, Campbell were the two players to watch out for, and um, we highlighted this last week. And well, there we go. I did, I did point out last week that I thought um, Martin Boyle was a terrible footballer, not actually as good as he. Th- as I think people make him out to be. I still stand by that. I didn't think he had a particularly good game yesterday, um, to be honest. Um, we'll go into that in a sec. Let's go into it now, actually, because I thought that um, Hayden Coulson had a good game on the whole while he was on the pitch. I thought he did well up against Martin Boyle. I've got no idea what actually happened with Coulson, though, because he went off in 55 minutes. I've not seen it 
mentioned anywhere about what happened with him. I'm going to presume it was an injury. Um, but he didn't look like he was in any like distress or issues. It seemed very, very odd. Um, I would have presumed either yeah an injury, but there's been no chat about it, or no. we are simply managing his minutes. But even then, I think you'd get a clarification about that, given how well he was playing. Uh, yeah, seems like a strange one. And then, yeah, um, I don't want to be overly harsh and keep hammering this home, but I did feel that when I heard that Colson was off and McKenzie was on, it's a significant downgrade. I mean, whether it's coincidence or not, um, it's within seven minutes of Colson going off that Hibs get take the lead. And I, you know, I, the way that second half was going, I, I would have been amazed if Hibs hadn't won the game, to be quite frank. But you never know, do you, at that point? We had managed to kind of keep them They'd had a few chances and Roos had made a few couple of good saves and that's kind of where you start to think maybe a home team might get a bit frustrated and might, you know, kind of start to lose the plot a little bit potentially. You know, we'd kind of kept him at bay for nearly 20 minutes. You kind of think maybe, maybe there might be a chance here to get back into it. But then, the, yeah, the goal, the first goal from Campbell just, just destroys any chance of that happening at all. In terms of our decision-making from substitutions again, um, as soon as the penalty is scored, I mean, there's minutes left. Maybe just a minute left in the first yeah, half, but forty-four minutes, isn't it? That the penalty yeah. goes on. Um, Goodwin makes the decision to take Dukov, sticks Polvara on. Now, first of all, is it the wrong substitution in terms of the per- person coming off the park and the person coming on the park to begin with? I would, personally speaking, I would have, and I think I know why he went with the decision of taking Dukov and not Miofsky. Because Miofsky's the main man. Yeah. And maybe you're thinking our chance in the second half might be a penalty. And I want my main man on the pitch for that. Or it might be a set piece. Or it might be... It's, it's probably more likely to be a a set play or something, potentially. Yeah. yeah. Um, but from my perspective, in a game when you're down to 10 men, I think you want as many options as you can have on the pitch to stretch the game. And to pressure the opposition into sitting back a bit deeper. And for me, Duke is the person I would have left on the pitch. Even in maybe a false nine, maybe if you want to have him sitting further back in a defensive um, position, don't mind about that. Option for you to break a pace, he would be... And I think Duke's probably... I think, I'm think i not saying Miofsky's lazy or anything, he's tracking back, he works hard. But I think Duke offers more from a defensive perspective in terms of just pressing so uh, he would have been my my option. If not Miofsky, then given his form as of late, yeah, Vinny would have been my consideration as well. Yeah, I wonder if the reason that um, Miofsky wasn't considered to be taken, I, I don't know if Duke is quite there yet in terms of his fitness to play a full 90 minutes. Um, and so you'd have the concern if you take Miofsky off, you're going to have to take off Duke at 60, 65 minutes anyway. So I do wonder if that played into the manager's thinking. I would have probably personally looked to probably taking the Bajouin, um off, to be honest, and pro- probably putting Duke onto the wing. I also just think that in a situation like that, your chances are going to be few and far between. And what we've seen from Duke so far is he's got an ability to create something out of nothing sometimes. He so, does, yeah. yeah. The unpredictability factor would have also been an added bonus but hey this is this is all hindsight of course of course absolutely and the decision to put Polvara in again I understand why it happened because I think looking at the bench we didn't have another central midfielder on the bench I don't think yesterday so I can see why the decision was made to put Polvara in 
Um, I'd rather probably just seen us play Jack Mill and keep McCrory in the centre of the park or even put McKenzie in there, to be honest with you. But again, that's uh, hindsight. Polvara's performance, though, um, second half in particular, was concerning, I think. I think um, that's two games this season now that he's played where he's looked really out of his depth, it's fair to say. Um, and again, it's not great from the perspective that we're looking uh, Barron's injured. So that's part of the reason why we look so light in the centre midfield. But the centre midfield is a, tr- is a worrying area as well now in terms of coverage for there if, if Ramadani and uh, McCrory are injured or having to be redeployed in other roles. Concerning is a very diplomatic way of describing Dante's performance. I've seen uh, <laughs> far more uh, gritty takes online. Yeah, I mean, you kind of look back with hindsight now and think that when we were perhaps praising Dante, it was the end of last season in pretty meaningless fixtures that were played at about a, a walking pace. Yeah. Um, and then in the in the heat of battle, uh, at the start of a new season, yeah, I'm not quite sure that we're going to get what we hoped we would get from, from Dante Pulvara. Um, difficult, because he's not played a huge amount of football, so to come straight out of the cold into a game like that is going to be a challenge for just about anyone but if he's not if he's not in the manager's thinking even for coming off the bench or, or whatever then you know in games where we don't necessarily need to bring him on but we want to have an extra option to give either McCrory or Ramadani a rest because that's as looking these guys are gonna have to play every minute of every game this season for us to be successful because like you say it's it's really it's painfully thin how how kind of short we are across a lot of the park, probably with the exception of the uh, attacking three options. Um, so yeah, definitely a concern. And when it comes to the substitution, I guess, and we're going to talk about maybe the timing of it. Let's do that now. The timing of the substitution. I think um, it seemed like a very rash decision. I think in that situation, you can easily say to Johnny Hayes, who will work his socks off all day, Listen, Johnny, just go into centre midfield for a couple of minutes and let's just see the first half out and let's just really analyse things and let's just really take a good look at our options here. Yeah, it seemed um, extremely, a very hurried decision, actually, yeah. Well, especially if nothing else, because it just allowed Hibbs 15 minutes to go, well, this is what they're doing. Let's decide, let's set ourselves up in a way and let's like, work on that right now in the 15 minutes we've got in the changing room rather than potentially springing something on them they weren't expecting after the break or putting even what they maybe would expect on at the break. But, you know, you're still making them have to guess. You're still making them have to react to something rather than giving them 15 minutes to prepare for it. And if nothing else, if you make the substitution at halftime... We get three subs and... He'd have saved himself another substitution slot for later in the game where you potentially needed it. Which I, I also find baffling. I mean, I know that... <clears throat> was it after the Submarine game at the start of the season where he said this wouldn't happen again in terms of like fucking up his substitutions or substitution allowances, not making the most of them. He's done it again. I think that's the third time now this season. Um, I just, I find it bizarre that he didn't trust the, the, the 10 players who were left on the park to see out the rest of the first half at 1-1 and then regroup and then take a call from there. But what you do, um, really, really, really bizarre from that perspective. Um, I think the big thing as well, yes, it's one of these, it's another one, it's another game this season where we've just had so many of the team just not at the races. Um, 
which is also disappointing and also concerning. It seems like we seem to be a team that when it clicks, everyone's clicking and it looks good. But then it's like, we don't seem to be in a position where we have just one or two guys having an off day and everyone else is still quite solid. We seem to be absolutely all or nothing. And yesterday was absolutely in the nothing camp. Um, I guess Bajowin and Miofsky are probably the two who've attracted the most criticism uh, over overnight and, and during the day-to-day on, on, on the socials. Um, Anthony Stewart potentially getting a little bit of, of slack as well. But on Bajowin in particular, it's not kind of clicking for him at the moment, is it? And I know that I see a lot of people talking now about, is he like vastly overrated and are the club kind of continually trying to push some sort of narrative about him about unearthing a gem because we've spent a bit of money on him and all this stuff and i see some people having some slightly odd takes about you know i find the like the fucking sticky toffee pudding thing that they did with him like really cringeworthy and like it's like they're trying to ram home that he's really great i don't think it was i think i was just trying to build bring out back the guy's character more than anything to be quite honest i don't think it was much more than that but um Let's look at Bajan first. Is it maybe time for him to be taken out of the team for a little bit and kind of regroup and uh, and try and f- get him back into the team once he gets builds up a bit of confidence potentially? I feel like I've advocated for that before. Um, I think you have, to be fair to you. I think when you look back at things, I'm sure that Vinny will have played almost, you know, almost every game that he's been available for since he arrived here. Yeah, I think he has. In January, um, and it took on a huge burden of responsibility last year in a, in a terrible team, let's be honest about it. Um, I just think that, I just think that, yeah, some time to reassess himself and maybe even just to hammer home the point that he's not going to be in the team every week, no matter what. Because it feels like to me like that he's always, he's always been told that, listen, mate, you're going to be our main man. So you're always going to be in a room. I think we've got options on our bench or in our squad where we can afford to drop Vinny, get him like some time to focus on what he's good at on the training ground, build some confidence back up and then, you know, unleash him again. I don't, I understand people who are saying that he's, who are starting to question him because by and large out with the league cup this year, he's not been up to much really. Um, It has been a pretty disappointing league campaign for him to date. Um, I would, Personally, um, we've got some time off now, also with the international break before the Kilmarnock game. I would be in favour of dropping him, and I'd love to see us give Ryan Duncan a start. Yeah, I don't disagree on that front at all. Um, what about Miofsky? Uh Well, again, yeah, I've seen some interesting takes about uh, about Boyan uh, and how he's maybe actually not up to much. <laughs> um, I mean, let's get down to brass tacks first of all it's a horrendous miss it's a terrible miss i I understand the ball is maybe a tiny bit behind him but it doesn't excuse the effort um and you never know i mean that's what 15 minutes to go three two hibs maybe start to think about hibsing it um it's again a critical uh situation that we don't take advantage of and it comes back to bite us um i've liked miofsky so far to date no question about it i think he had a bad day at the office there but i wouldn't be going i think i'd be looking inward too critically on this one i think maybe just accept it is what it is and then we look forward to him getting back on the goal trail against Kilmarnock. yeah i've seen a couple of weird ones about this one i mean i think i've seen people's way say like me like when the going gets tough he kind of goes missing a little bit 
I think that when you're asked to play as a lone striker, which he predominantly has been since he's been here, um, he's only played up front with another partner yesterday for the first time. And even then, after the second half, he's playing up top by himself. Um, I guess the team who never got the who didn't never put their foot on the ball. So I think as a number nine, if you're up there by yourself, if the if if things are not going well for the team, I think it could be really difficult for you to influence a game. Full stop. If the team don't have the ball, <clears throat> short of running around like a headless chicken, what can you really do? And I think running around like a headless chicken doesn't actually help anybody in that situation. He's better to be staying in his position for the hope that we do actually get a foot in the ball and try and make something happen the, the, the chance yesterday is terrible i've seen some people saying that his decision making and his finishing can be a bit lackluster you know people are pointing to misses against you know one-on-one and i was like against uh, motherwell where he tries to chip kelly and i think was yeah. it one-on-one against simmer i can't remember um that he didn't finish particularly well yeah okay but he also finished really well one-on-one against keeper against livingston um I think he had another one, one-on-one against Livingston, which he scored, but was ruled off for offside. Um, you know, I, I don't have any major concerns. I don't think about Miofsky's ability to finish. I just think yesterday, bad at the office, the ball slightly behind him, potentially a bit fucking knackered as well, a bit tired, whatever, tired mind and all that kind of shit. It's a bad miss. Um, truth be told, I doubt we'd probably get anything out of the game yesterday anyway. And if that's the case, I'd probably rather he's missing it at that point than he misses one like that against... Hearts or United or something that sends us third and then the season. Um these things happen as strikers you're gonna you're gonna miss opportunities sometimes. It's a bad one. Hopefully he can just put it behind him though it's not one that comes back to kind of really biting from a confidence perspective. Um I feel we have to talk about this now. The penalty. The penalty. I thought we were gonna get through this review without talking about that actually. No, no danger of that. I just thought I'd leave it till now to talk about because um I'm gonna go and get our beer just now to try and soften this one. Uh, where do you start with this? We're, we're, we're ha- I've seen a lot of Hibs fans today try to play this whole. Well, you would have like you would take it if it goes for you. Well, of course I would because that's the nature of the game. But at the same time, it doesn't change the fact that it's a poor decision by the referee to give the penalty. So we'll come to that in a second. But th- does Liam Scales need to have a look at himself as well a little bit here for getting involved and making it easy? <sighs> See. Jim Goodwin in the post-match talked about how they had identified Ryan Porteous and his tendency to get tight to his defenders and make the most out of situations, and they were warned against doing that. In this circumstance, I feel that, having watched it a couple of times, that Porteous 100% initiates the grappling and in turn, you know, what the thing that results in Porteous hitting the ground is him getting Liam Scales in a headlock and then just dragging him down with all his weight and then throwing his arms up in the air, claiming for the penalty. And the referee has 100% guessed what's happened here. Nothing more, nothing else, nothing less. I don't really... I've tried. I've watched it, and I, this is one of these things that really annoys me about football and fans in general. Is just how <laughs> disingenuous they are, because there is absolutely no fucking way that if that happened, roles were reversed, Hibs fans would be saying, "Oh well, ends the breaks." Case Sarah, Sarah, you know Ryan Porter should done, should do better there. I don't know what Liam Seals can do more. I don't know what he can do to really get away from him. He's trying to stay up. 
you know, there's there's contact because Porches has run into him. Uh, yeah, yeah, I I don't know. I don't know what I don't know what the hell he can do in that situation. I don't know how many times I've watched this incident back today now because I've seen so many different people's different takes on it. Like I see some people going, Oh, scales gets too tight to him. It's like if you actually if you start if you if you pause just as the as the corner gets taken, Scales is actually giving himself room off of Porteous. He's he's wanting to try and run like match a run rather than get too tight to him. And you're exactly right. <clears throat> Porteous makes two movements, the second one of which brings him into Scales. Scales then stupidly puts his hands on him, which is I can see why it happens. And I think people also will say, Oh, it's really daft of him. And it's really naive. Like if you've ever played football, like in a situation like that, what what's your natural reaction? Your natural reaction is to it is to help you try and stand up because if you put your arms by your side and a guy runs into you, chances are you're just getting bowled over, and he's gonna have a free run for a header. Although the ball's probably missing both of them anyway, but it's a moot point. I think Scales potentially does hold on to him a little bit too long, but at the same time, at by this point, that, that's the point in which um, Portis has stuck his arm over the top of his head, pulled him downwards. Made it look like he's taking him down. I mean, I hate to say it, it's clever play by Porteous. I mean, I think Kim's fans are maybe taking my point um, in the way that I didn't, in the way I hadn't intended, and I understand why because I made it very black and white. This is I'll call a spade a spade, and I'll call a cheat a cheat. Ryan Porteous is a cheat, but that's part of football. I don't. That's that's how it goes. And if you know, if it happens in a situation that's not where it doesn't affect your team, you laugh at it. I mean, Christ, we laughed at Vinny Bajowin and his mir- miraculous recovery at Glens Park. <laughs> yeah. And of course that was Bajowin cheating. Exactly. And I, I see Hibs fans as well go, oh, look at this one. You tell me this isn't a penalty, the McCrory one, the yeah. handball. And I'm like, that's a penalty kick. I will happily say that was a penalty kick and we got away with one there. I love the Hibs fans that are bringing up an image of a game with St. Mirren and acting as though that's relevant. I know. Is this because of Goodwin's thing where he said that he bought one against St. Mirren. I, th- I think this is what this is about. Uh, quite possibly. I thought to initially, to begin with, it was people getting mixed up that this was like, they thought this was Aberdeen. Yeah. About two nice. seasons yeah. ago, which also makes no sense. But I think it was to do with Goodwin saying, oh, he did it to my St. Mirren team a couple of times Could or something. Could be the layers within that. Listen, I mean, if Hibs anyway, fans... doesn't matter. If Hibs fans are happy with Ryan Porteous and the way that he conducts himself, then that's Hibs fans. Prerogative, I don't really mind it at all. Um, I'm annoyed because I think it might even have been cheated. But I'm not so much actually annoyed at Porteous as much as I am at the referee and his assistant, who I believe have either just called it wrong or what I think more likely is they've just guessed. And I don't see... And I know like people will talk about how they they missed the McCrory handball, which, yep, yeah, it's a handball. It's a penalty. No arguments made. See, everyone, it is possible to admit it. Yeah. When your team have given away a penalty and you've got off with one. Um, but that shouldn't affect... The referee's decision and in that situation i cannot see for the life of me how that is a foul for hibs and i definitely do not see how it's a yellow card i must admit when we got away with the mccrody one i did think if there's another decision to be made <clears throat> at some point for a penalty later in the game he'll give it because it was that glaring an issue he got wrong in the mccrody handball that i thought he would try and like level up that decision making in his head at some point um it's bad I see some people as well saying about VAR. I'm not even entirely sure VAR overturns that. You know that? Like, depending on who it is in Scotland administering it, I'm not entirely sure that they don't look at it and go, well, Scales does have his arms around him to begin with. Do you remember um, in the Euros when 
Raheem Sterling dived against Denmark. Yes. And they got a penalty and went to VAR. And the reasoning behind not overturning was because the referee, it was like, well, the referee thinks this has happened. Yeah. Therefore, we can't overturn it. So, yeah, nothing would have happened. It would have been a penalty. As it was, I'm not even entirely sure. I mean, going to 10 men, I think, does influence the game. But I'm not convinced we got out of there with anything more than a defeat yesterday anyway, given the way we played after we scored. Um, I didn't see enough about us to suggest that we would have gone on to win that game, to be honest with you. The bigger disappointment was just the fact that we just seemed to absolutely shit the bed once we went down to 10 men and we just rolled over way, way too easily. And I think we're starting to maybe see now the first real proper questioning about Jim Goodwin um, from yesterday's performance and, and overnight. I mean, I think that makes it 19 league games that he's been in charge of us for now. Um, usually, Gav, you've got your little black book here for this, but um, I think it's gone walkabout. Yeah, let me uh, review the situation here. Although my record does include cup games. so Yours does include cup games, but let's just look at like the league stats. I'm pretty sure that's 19 league games now. Only five wins, six draws in that time, and then eight defeats. Um, that's, that's a win percentage in the league of 26%, which is not good. I am going to adopt the position as many of us took last year, where I'm going to simply ignore <laughs> last season and uh, okay. abomination in his record, because I think that was a situation that not many managers have done huge a huge amount better with. As it stands, it's three wins, uh, one draw and three defeats out of seven in this campaign to date, which probably tells us the story that we're a little bit sad to realize that it's not going to be this quick fix. Um, I think this, I think we're going to be a very inconsistent team this season going forward. Um, I know people are concerned that we've only won one game against 11 men and we haven't beaten a team um, again with 11 men with an open goal or a goal from open play, should I say. But I think there are extenuating circumstances in some of these things. And yeah, I, I think going down to 10 men is definitely going to be a factor in in any game. I don't think it's the the level to which that Jim Goodwin referenced in his post-match interview, which I thought was a little disappointing about how going down to 10 men made it almost... I'm not sure oh. he said this. I'm not sure if he said this word, but he almost made it sound as though it was inevitable we would lose... Yeah, he basically said, oh, you can maybe like keep at it for like 10, 15 minutes, but playing for 45 minutes against 10 men is really difficult. Uh, playing yeah. with 10 men. And I'm like, Jim, like literally three weeks ago, you were telling us how difficult it is to play against 10 men. Yeah, I mean, like you said, I mean, like, Kilmarnock held out against um, Hibs, Kilmarnock held out against Ross County and Dingwall. We've seen far better teams with a man advantage and not be able to make it count. Um, so, yeah, that was, I'm sure that's something he would look back on and think, oh, I shouldn't have said that. But got a whole people to the same kind of standard as you have their their predecessors. And I thought that was a really, a really ill-judged comment. And it speaks to, like, you're, while you're talking about this mentality of not being able to stand up in these difficult situations. Yeah, I, I can't decide if he was trying to deflect away from the performance. Of course he was. But really try and pull one out of the kind of um, in the Fergie kind of school of tricks and we'll talk about something else over here rather than talk about how bad the performance was on the whole. Um, I, I, very, I, just, I thought the 10 men comments, it's fine. He could do all he wants to talk about Porteous and Porteous being a cheat and all that and that's fine. And if he wants to use that as a deflection tactic, fine. I've got no massive issues with that, to be honest. It's what you expect managers to do is to try and protect their team uh, where they can. 
but the 10 men thing I thought was just really odd because like I say like two or three weeks two or three weeks ago he's telling us playing as 10 men is difficult you know when Livingston went to 10 men and when um, St Mirren went to 10 men so it's like you can't you know that 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 cake can't be spun both ways that is some fucking wonderful mixing of analogies uh, right there you, you know you can't spin that so many different ways just to suit whatever argument you want to use at any one given time it's just an absolute nonsense argument as far as I'm concerned and like I say you saw a Kamarnik side who I'll probably come back to regret this in two weeks time for who for me are looking odds on I think at the moment for relegation um, they did what a Derek McInnes team would, would do in that scenario there they kind of really just like rolled their sleeves up and really got after Hibs and, and didn't make it easy for Hibs when, um, when they went out of 10 men okay they got beat 1-0 eventually in the end but they made it difficult for them. I don't think Hibs will have an easier second half this season, to be quite honest. Um, very odd. And and are we in a position now where people can realistically start to question Goodwin? I mean, I saw some people saying today, you know, does he get an easy ride because he because he's a good-looking guy and because he talks well in the media? Um, I, I'm not sure if the good-looking guy thing has any sort of bearing on this whatsoever, but is the fact that he does talk well, is that buying him more time to support or the support potentially being more patient with Goodwin at the moment because they recognise the absolute huge rebuild that had to take place over the summer. And so you can't expect, you know, miracles in what are we, seven league games at the moment. You know, we are inconsistent is probably the best way to to, to put us at the moment. But at the same time, the last... The performances haven't really been there, have they? Certainly not against 11 men. You know, we, we looked decent against Samirin when they went down to 10. We looked good against Livingston when they went down to 10. Each of those games before the sendings off, it was a bit of a it was a bit of a struggle. Um, last time out at Dingwall, we dominated the ball, didn't really do very much with it. Think you've won it. Soft underbelly comes to four again, you know, and then and then Saturday's performance is is really bad. Um, are we just going to be like this all season, Jing? Are we going to be inconsistent till the death, and we're just going to have to hope that the glob reforms? <laughs> I feel like the globe already has reformed in some way. I think it has actually, to be honest with you. I think it's going to be a really deeply unpredictable league once more. Um, whether that's because of quality or a dearth, of, off. A dearth <laughs> of said of said quality, I'm not quite sure. I mean, I enjoyed so. I mean, obviously, today, Sunday, when we record, St. Mirren have beaten Celtic by two goals to nil. And it was only about a week or two ago that I remember seeing um, Danny from the dog or saints podcast tweeting about how he was seeing comments to the effect of St. Mirren fans saying oh how are we getting beat by a team like St. Johnston yeah yeah so um I feel like we're in a very um a very competitive league for sure um I have got the feeling that I mean cliche alert Rome wasn't built in a day we are three wins one draw three defeats from seven the the record kind of you know levels itself out yeah. So to speak, we are in the quarterfinals of the League Cup. This was a huge rebuild in the summer. Um, a disastrous season to be recovered from. I think people will, generally speaking, understand this. And, you know, with very rare exceptions, changing manager, putting managers under pressure, early doors, you know, it just creates instability. We don't want to be here in another, um, what would we, nine months? with a new manager talking about how we need to <laughs> ship out an entire squad to rebuild an entire squad again. You say that, Gav, it gives us plenty of stuff to talk about. Well, I it mean, does. Well, I mean, for us, it's fine. Yeah. I mean, disaster has been the key to our success, really. True. 
I'm going to play devil's advocate though. You're you're talking about like putting pressure on a new manager is not ideal early doors. In a way though, the manager's put pressure on himself though, hasn't he? I mean, he came in and he said he'd sort the defence out in a couple of weeks and that would be easy. And here we are, well, 19 league games in and entirely new <clears throat> defence has been brought in that he's brought in this time. It's not it's not Declan Gallagher. Um, and the same defensive issues are still there. That second goal, the second goal, man. Fuck me. Like I mean, I mean the second goal there. I mean, we've we've kind of actually glossed over a lot of the game, but I mean, even set pieces. I mean, there's a chance Hibbs get yeah, which results from I think Annie Stewart and Johnny Hayes going for the same ball, and then ricochets off one of them, and then the Hibbs <laughs> player should have scored. In reality, there is a fragility about us that has remained persistent for the last what Christ two and a half years. Pretty much since McInnes left, you know. I um, mean, towards the end of Derek McInnes, we were, I felt like we were losing a number of goals. I mean, that could just be the Ross County game playing tricks on my mind. I think it's probably the Ross County game that's probably skewing that a bit. We were we were starting to lose games more frequently, but we weren't shipping loads of goals. Yeah, yeah. We just weren't scoring was the big problem. I mean, it's the, well, that's the thing, because we haven't, I mean, you might correct me on this, but we haven't shipped a huge number of goals. It's just we've shipped decisive goals more often than not in the league you're talking about in the league yeah um uh, we shipped 10 i mean i'm talking like going back to next last year and okay the time before that um maybe post Eric mcginnis to be exact um i mean we're, we're eight we're, we're eighth in the table for average goals conceded per game only ross county kamarnik and well united obviously because of that <laughs> nine <laughs> This is what I talked about today. You know, I, I, we talked about in the preview about Hibs tightening up. The Hibs are second in the table for average goals conceded per I can't game. Believe that? No, but you know what? Uh, can't believe that. that must I know be, that was this. This feels like an episode of Black Mirror. <laughs> Every episode here feels like an episode of Black Mirror, Gav. Um, you know, so we we, we are conceding. We're conceding goals at a, a fair rate of knots. I mean, it's it's the th- who do you have there? You've got well, you've got three to Hibs, three to Motherwell. Uh, no, no, I'm just looking, I'm looking at the league table. It's United, Kilmarnock, Ross County. So the bottom three, plus us and St. Johnston, have conceded the least, uh, conceded the most amount of goals so far. So, yeah. you know, that said, we've, we've conceded half of what United have, so. Well, every cloud and all that. Um, yeah, uh, to answer your question, I do have the suspicion this will be what it's going to be like, um, which is frustrating as hell, for sure. But um, I think... To me, he's he's still the he's unquestionably. I mean, there's no even no even any doubt about this right now that he's the right man to take us to where we need to be. But yeah, make no mistake, we need to have. I mean, <laughs> you talk about something we've talked about before. We need a really big January already. You can identify it. We need. <laughs> well, that's I, not good. I would say what three to maybe four in the door. Guys are going to come in and make a difference in the first team as well. Not Adam Montgomery. I mean, if we do that, if we were, I'm just looking at our form at the moment. We'd, if we ended up with the same sort of form for the rest of the season, we'll end up on something like 51, 52 points, something around that sort of mark. And I'm trying to just look to see what the actual, what did the table do last year? I feel that's around about fourth place last year. Uh, it would have seen you fourth. Yeah, you'd have, you'd have come ahead of United last season on that sort of point style, which, you know, in a, I think a lot of us would probably take that as a successful season based on what happened last season if we finished fourth. I think we've been talking progress wise. Uh, yes. It would, um, it would only be a nine point it would only be a nine point improvement on actually what we ended up with last season. Nine it's points a, though. 
Uh, yeah, no, but it's like it's not a massive leap. You know what I mean? If you think about the if you think about the investment that's gone in our squad in the summer, um, in particular, you know, um, it, it takes time. We'll it have more time. than fifty-one. Okay, let's mark that down now. Um, put that into. We'll the be calendar. sitting in seventh place with sixty. <laughs> Having failed to make the tops, <laughs> have failed to make the split. Yeah, we'll won have, all of our games. We'll have like the split. third highest points tally, but we'll be in seventh. Yeah, love well, that. Would be pretty much typical Aberdeen. When <laughs> Yeah, um, trying times, but hey, I mean, it's uh, yeah. I think inconsistency will be the the key word through the season. But let's just um, as disappointing as Saturday was, we just need to dust ourselves down, come up with a game plan that maybe doesn't involve Ross McCrory dropping back into centre back, and figure out how we're going to approach Kilmarnock at Pedodri. Yeah, let's not waste a lot of time talking about the Kilmarnock match now because we've got a whole episode to do on that. Next week. We'll do that um, next week. And the company hopefully have some uh, poor bastards that support Kilmark. Fingers crossed, they eh? hopefully. Let's hope for that. Um I'm not even gonna I don't think I'm even gonna insult the intelligence of our listeners by suggesting them from, top dawn. From what I've seen of the highlights, I would suggest Kelrus. Kelrus, Coulson, maybe. Duke's header was good. Uh, I'm sticking with uh, Mr. Kelrus. None of his none of the goals were his fault, and there's some very, very good saves in there. Yeah, yeah. Jeff Maybe. will be sitting screaming at his car stereo now. Jeff's doing a joke. One. Jeff's doing a joke. Everybody stop because Jeff's doing a joke. <laughs> I love it. Let's move on. News from Pathology and Court Park this week, let's be honest. Fuck all, which means we can move straight on to Lone Watch. Keenan Iguenya, an all. unused substitute. <laughs> yeah. As Wraith eventually saw off Air United at Starks Park by three goals to two in the championship. Mason Hancock with a full 90 minutes under his belt as our Broth got their league campaign up and running with a 2-1 win at Greenock Morton. Evan Towler back in the Cove starting lineup and he played the full 90 as Cove staged a late comeback at Hill. Danger man, Mark Reynolds with both goals on 81 and 84 minutes to grab a draw for Cove in the championship. Gav was trying to do a golf applause there. You couldn't hear it properly. It doesn't really work on an audio-only podcast, but I was giving Mark a standing ovation there. It was. Lovely stuff. Delighted to see his first ever career double in a game. So, yeah. By the way, talking about Cove Rangers, did you see Paul Hartley got the got sacked from Hartlepool today? I did see that Paul Hartley got the dunt from Hartlepool today. That venture back in the full-time football really, really worked out for him. Yeah, well, there we go. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I just wanted to, <laughs> I love the fact that uh, I need to share this now because Mark was not going to have a problem with doing this. Uh, messaged him last night just to congratulate the return of the danger man. And his response was three laughing emojis. And sometimes you just have to do things by yourself. Lovely stuff. Top man. What more can you say? Tom Ritchie playing the full 90 minutes for Peterhead as they got their first win of the season, a 2 1 win over Kelty Hearts in League One. A late substitute appearance for Kevin Hanratty as Forfer pulled themselves off the foot of League 2 with a 2-0 win over fellow strugglers Albion Rovers. And Dean Campbell, an unused sub, as big bad Steve Evans finally ran out of bread when envelopes as his side went down by three goals to nil at Valley Parade. To Mark Hughes, did you know that Mark Hughes was manager of Bradford City? Is that the Mark Hughes? The Mark Hughes, yeah. yeah. Well, you didn't. Talking clearly. about brown envelopes. What? What? <laughs> I know we might need to put an allegedly in there, Gav. <laughs> is that 
because Derek Adams was manager then last year, wasn't he? Derek Adams was manager at um, Bradford, and then when he left, I think he said, "Good luck finding a manager as good as me," or something to that um, effect. Now, I'm not saying that Mark Hughes is a better manager or worse manager, but he's certainly a bigger name. He's a bigger name, certainly. Whether he would have done the job that Derek Adams at Ross County, I'm not sure. Hard to tell. Yeah, Hard, we'll never know. Okay. Well, fair enough. That's um, that's a. Would Mark Hughes have stood for getting bars overthrown by Jamie Hamill? No, Mark Hughes probably would have killed Jamie Hamill. Yeah, I think that was probably what would have happened there. Yeah. Derek Adams didn't handle himself very well at that, did he? Tell you what, though, Jamie Hamill, that's a, that's a blast from the past. That's a blast from the past, isn't it? I think he's still playing. He's not. Still or I think playing. he's maybe, I think he might be coach, like player coach somewhere. Oh, no. I have to look at this up now, Gav. Jamie Hamill. Can you imagine having to play in a team managed by Jamie Hamill? I can imagine. I think he's at he's Stranraer. He's, he's the player manager of Stranraer. There you go, yeah. He wears glasses. My uh, my pick. Look at him. Look at the neck of him. Hang on. Do I need to get on um, this? Wait, I could probably share my screen, can't I? Can I share a screen with you? Oh, who does he look like? <laughs> he looks like uh, your man, the Greg from MasterChef. <laughs> that's, that's extremely harsh to Jamie Hamill. Is it? <laughs> I don't think it is. Are you looking at the same photo? Uh, I've got one of him on the phone. Oh no no! This is the one I want. Uh, like in the chat, it goes two six. Gav, here we go in the chat. Here we go. For anyone who wants to look at the phone, the one I'm looking at, it's, it's stranrarfc.org forward slash tag forward slash Jamie dash Hamill. Oh my word! Yeah, it is, it is a bit like Greg, isn't it? He loves a buttery biscuit base. Enough of that. Enough of that. There we go. Wowzers. I was me hoping that um, maybe Derek Adams could get a return to Scottish football and him and Jamie Hamill could be reunited. That would be lovely. Well, Derek's tearing, Derek Adams is tearing up at Morecambe. Morecambe right now, what would he, I don't think he is tearing possibly up, he? be interested in coming back to Scotland for? He's not tearing up, is he? I think he's doing better than our ex-captain. No, he's definitely not. Brown's doing all right at Fleetwood. He's got the mid-table. Yeah, Brown's got Fleetwood 11th, uh, Morecambe are 23rd out of 24. I retract my previous statement. Yeah, yeah. Scott Brown's doing okay, actually, to be fair to him. Sean Rooney seems to be tearing up down there, so God knows. Anyway, we move on, Gav. Did, did you enjoy that segue about Jamie Hamill? Let's get away from the visual references on our audio-only podcast. Yeah, I did give the listeners, to be fair, um, the link to go and look at so they can form their own opinion. Tell us on Twitter... Who does Jamie Hamill look like in that photo? I'm just thinking, actually, you know, the last time we did an episode where um, Graham wasn't here, we had the segue about um, Be Here Now, didn't we? As I remember. We did. That um, That provoked some reaction. As it did, did provoke As did my, our comment about uh, One God Universe. Yeah, I don't know who, I don't know why somebody had a dick about this that day. Cause I, we never, I never, nobody slated them, as far as I recall. No, absolutely did not. No, I, I'm in no position to comment on the quality of their tunes. I think all I said was that they sounded exactly as you'd imagine them to sound like, given their name. And I think I said the name is a terrible name for a band, which it, objectively speaking, is. It is a terrible name for a band, but doesn't it mean that music's terrible? No, absolutely. The Beatles no, is a terrible name for a band. The, Be- the Beatles is a fucking rubbish name for a band. Let's not... Anyway, Jeff will enjoy this one because Jeff really wanted to like pick me up on the whole Be Here Now thing before. Um, Jeff's a big fan of... Do you remember You're Gorgeous by Baby Bird? Do you remember that? Yeah. Uh, you remember that song? Yeah, Jeff's a big fan of that one. Gorgeous. That one, That's the yeah, one. Yeah. Any thoughts on that one? Um, 
<laughs> I mean, that is an entirely unrehearsed part of this part of the show. Um, the whole thing's unrehearsed, Calvin. What are you on about? <laughs> it's um, it's a decent enough show, isn't it? Oh, Calvin's got. So it's, it's a catchy chorus. I mean, I can't think of anything else that goes on within it. But hit us up, AVZ Football Podcast Solar System Twitter. What do you think about Baby Parents? You're gorgeous from 1996. That's us. We're all about the current references here on this show will we move on i feel like what we have to do next week on week now is just pick a number from jeff's playlist and just see what everyone thinks about it yeah why the hell not? why not this will this can replace our musical segment from last year yeah speaking of which i've got maybe an idea for that we can come back on that later on Gavin. Um, <clears throat> when we finish recording don't want to give away our secrets obviously anyway let's let's move on from from that no game for the young team this week, which means we can move straight into looking at the women's team. And the week started with the news that the Dons had made another signing, this time in the form of Dutch midfielder Nadine Hansen, the central midfielder, having previously played professionally with Aston Villa and in Belgium before taking some time out of the game to start a family. Nadine is the partner of Dons keeper Kel Roos, and she will provide some experience from playing at the top of the game. Down south, and after a couple of weeks' absence due to circumstances, the Quines returned to SWPL one action on Sunday with a visit to Spartans. Three changes for Emma Hunter and Gavin Beath side. Donna Patterson, Maya Christie and Elena Karkanen dropping out, replaced by Madison Finney, Ava Thompson and Francesca Ogilvie. The visitors having a huge appeal for an early penalty turned away when Hannah Stewart's cross struck a Spartans player's arm in the box, but the referee only pointed for a corner kick. The host then came close to taking the lead Mason's effort curling off the post before there were strong appeals for a Spartans penalty this time as the ball appeared to hit Jessica Broderick's arm but again the referee waved play on Bailey Collins and Hutchison linked well to put Ogilvy through on goal 10 minutes before the break but Yates and the Spartans sticks came off her line well to block and the sides went in level at half time the second half got off to a sensational start as the hosts were reduced to 10 men as Hannah Jordan was ordered off for descent a straight red, Gav. So I'd love to know what was said there. Do you want to venture a, an opinion, a thought? Straight red for dissent. Yeah. I mean, you can only imagine the industrial language some of these ladies are coming out with. Shocking stuff. A disgrace. But the Quines couldn't replicate what Hibbs did to the men's side the day prior in the capital. Alana Marshall's long-range efforts spilled by Meech over the line and the home side were a goal to the good. The Dons went close and equaliser. Collins' cross met by Ogilvy but she nodded wide of goal. And with the visitors pressing for an equaliser, the host snatched a decisive second, a long ball, finding Galbraith, and she closed in on goal before chipping Meach. And that's how it finished. Spartans 2, Aberdeen nil. Next up is the visit of Celtic to the Balmoral next Sunday as the Dons slip to 11th in the table with no wins from their first five outings. Difficult start to the season for sure, but uh, hopefully the addition of Nadine Hansen Sounds like she's got a lot of quality and experience playing at the highest level in England. That'll give the girls a real helping hand and can turn around this. Um, yeah, it's not been the greatest start of the season. Hope they can turn it around soon. Yeah, absolutely, Gav. And with no game next week to preview as we head into the first international break of the season, I think that seems like a pretty sensible place to wrap up this section of the ABZ Football Podcast. Join us after the break for part one of our interview. Jockey Scott. The ABZ Football Podcast is proudly sponsored by Siberia Bar and Hotel on Belmont Street, Aberdeen. 
each Saturday throughout the month of August, Siberia are bringing you the very best of Aberdeen's musical talent onto their terrace in the sun, hopefully. Join them as DJs, acoustic acts and more take to the stage and, as the bar is only 30 seconds walk from the nearest bus stop to Petodre Stadium, it's the perfect place for pre- and post-match pints. And even better, head to the bar, quote the phrase ABZ Pod as ABZ Pod for a £3 pint of Foster's, £4 pint of Moretti or £5 pint of Fierce any day of the week, including match days. Welcome back to the ABZ Football Podcast. And before we move on to part one of an interview with Jockey Scott, we just want to give a shout out to Mark Robertson. <laughs> it sounds like that Phil Taylor thing with Boris Johnson. Have you seen it? Phil Taylor thing with Boris Johnson. <laughs> so I think you must have those seen are, this. Those are two names I would like to steer very well clear of. So um, I think it was about the time that Johnson um, allegedly went to hospital with COVID. And ah. um, some people started doing like, clapping on the doorstep for him and phil taylor you need to find this yeah I'll, I'll have to find it and send a link to to you i assume phil, you are talking about phil the power taylor here yeah phil the power taylor yeah it was um obviously just just phil taylor just a guy down the somebody street. called phil taylor yeah. <laughs> um filmed himself or, or had himself filmed almost like dan wooten dan wooten-esque you know it was obviously very spontaneous um filmed himself on his uh doorstep uh, clapping and and willing on the former prime minister, but the unfortunate thing was it kind of went something a little bit like this. Go on, Boris. You can do it, Boris. Go on, Boris. Now, if you don't have any video footage for that, let's just say it sounds incredibly disturbing. Anyway, let's move on. Um, yeah, let's give a shout out to Mark Robertson, Mark, and ABZ Simon, Simon who have both made contributions to the Habies Head FP Beer and Coffee Fund this week. It's mainly the beers, I'll be honest, to get us through that fucking nonsense Easter Road yesterday. Uh, we see you both. Your bread is much appreciated. If you'd like to help us keep fueled in beers or coffees, please head on over to ko-fi.com forward slash ABZ football podcast. The link is in the description. Throw some pennies, buy us a beer or coffee. It is very much appreciated, isn't it, Gavin? Always. And we're also ramping up our fundraising activities for the season ahead. Uh, we've spoken about it before a lot. The three of us are running, cycling, crawling, walking, whatever the 2,261 kilometers that represents the distance between Aberdeen and Gothenburg. And we're aiming to do it by the 11th of May 2023, which will be, of course, the 40th anniversary of the Dons victory over Real Madrid in the Swedish reign. Yeah, beating Real Madrid, it's not for everyone. Not for everyone at all, of course not. Um, if you'd like to make a donation to this one, uh, which will see us split our funds 50-50 between Aber Necessities and the AFC Heritage Trust, please just head on over to justgiving.com forward slash crowdfunding forward slash ABZ football podcast. And I think, think we'll move on from that, Gavin, because I don't want to give Gray in the airtime about like, how well he's done in the last week. No, I'll just I'll provide my own update that um, I document my distances in my AFC DNA notebook nice. and then transfer it over to the spreadsheet we have 
Um, unfortunately, though, I've not been able to do that for the last few weeks because I'm lazy. Uh, tomorrow, I plan on taking a very solemn but very long walk. <laughs> so I suspect that will add a good amount of kilometers onto my total. And then I think, yeah, it's the week after I'm going to Norway. So there's going to be a hell of a lot of long walking going on there. I'm in Norway this week. Looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, just as far away as possible from uh, from the SPFL. Are you uh, going to be around for doing show next week? I will be here for the show next week, yes. When are you away? I'm away on Tuesday. Until? Until Monday. So you might have to record, not next week's show, but the week after without me. Okay. Um, because I will prob- I will definitely be indisposed because I'm at a wedding on the Sunday. Well, what kind of that is a that's a fucking disgraceful. If I could bring my setup to the mountain that they're having the wedding on, I would I think do you should, it, Gavin. Trust me, it would be the first one I'd actually maybe insist that we film, like you know, have video <laughs> involved. But I think there may be one or two logistical issues with that. So, yes, but I will certainly be around for next week's show. You'd be there for the edit. That's the most important thing. Not that your contributions to the show are not. Thanks. You're welcome. You are welcome. Um, by the way, this week, fucking hell, Spotify. What the actual fuck? That well, is it a Spotify issue or is it a <coughs> Podbean issue? I, I think it's a combination between the two of them, to be quite frank. Useless shites. I can't decide if Podbean just like scaled down their staff as a, on account of circumstances or what's going on. Be interested to see what happens this week. Um, let's, let's see. Anyway, um... We've not spoken about the Fantasy Football League for a while. Oh, yeah. Have we? I've had a decent week. I, I looked at it earlier. Let me have a wee look. I've probably had a terrible week. My imagine. defensive four all got points, including um, Aaron Greaves' favourite uh, player from the Bankery area, one Andrew Constantine. 32 points for me, which seems poor. Um, tied 197th in the league. 55 and it could have been more if i'd heeded my own advice from last week when you said and i quote martin boyle's not up to much and i said <laughs> everyone should captain him immediately um but yeah my back four uh gordon kingsley constantine and devlin all got points boyle obviously and shankland got 12 points so 55 in total which makes me tied 102nd place in the abz fp league stuff you can also join the league if you head to the main landing page on the app or you can use the code abzfpl to join and now it's time for the return of our series of interviews with dawn's personalities of past and present this time part one of our chat with a true legend of afc a man born grew up in the city supported the dawns as a boy before eventually making 67 appearances in red scoring 22 goals including a hat trick in the 1976 League Cup semi-final against Rangers before he returned to the club in 1988 to co-manage the side alongside Alex Smith. It is, of course, the one and the only Jockey Scott, and this week we're going to take some time to focus on his playing career. Jockey Scott, welcome to the ABZ Football Podcast. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Excellent. Look, Jockey, we were just talking before we started recording, look, we're, we're delighted to to have you on the show and um, we're going to do a two-part interview with you to look at your time and your career with Aberdeen part one tonight we're going to focus in on your time as a player and um, we'll have a look through your early career as well with with Dundee before you made the move back to the northeast and then 
in next week's show for part number two, we'll, we'll focus in on your time as uh, co-manager with uh, Alex Smith back in the late 80s. But let's just get going, I guess, from the start. So you were born in Aberdeen itself in, in January 1948. Just talk to us a little bit, Jockey, about your upbringing in the city at the time. As you said, I was born in Aberdeen. My early years, I lived in uh, not far from Petodre and Orcutt Road. And uh, we lived in a cul-de-sac. So from a young age, probably five, six, I was outside kicking the ball about with any other kids that were in the street. Um, I went to uh, King Street School, primary school. Um, and then when I was about eight, uh, my parents moved to Kincorth uh, and I went to Abbeswell School, primary school. And uh, then I started uh, to get involved in football there. Uh, I got chosen for the, the school team uh, when I was, I uh, think, about nine or ten. Um, and then we we did well. We had a wee run. Um and the, the cup, and uh, and we performed at Petaudry in the cup final. Excellent. Schoolboy's dream always at Petaudry in, in the old days for the, the schoolboy cup finals. Yeah, well, I mean, at, at that time, uh, I was going to Petaudry and watching games with my dad. And um, as you said, to play in a cup final uh, on Petaudry, uh, you know, was 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 great. Uh I mean, I didn't. We, the the team didn't realise at the time uh, how big a pitch mm. Petaudry was, because um, uh, remember it was primary schools. We were under twelve, uh, <laughs> so we we had a lot of running to do on the uh, on that pitch. Uh, but thoroughly enjoyed it, and we we were successful. So that made it even uh, much more better. Um, and then, you know, I had a couple of years, two or three years playing at, for Abbotswell Primary School. Uh, and then I moved on to um, going to Cam Hill. Uh, and unfortunately, I was only there six months because I had I had passed my 11 plus and uh, exams and uh, I had been accepted into the grammar school. Okay, okay. And unfortunately for me, the grammar school didn't play football. Of course, absolutely, yeah. Um, you just touched on, obviously, that you went to Petaudry as a youngster. Um, who would have been your, your favourite players when you were growing up, do you think, in the, in the red shirt? Uh, the, the, the main players were, um, like, say, Graham Leggett, Jackie Hadder, Archie Glenn, uh, Freddie Martin in goal, Yorston. Mm-hmm. Paddy Buckley, they they were all. I mean, for me, they and they were those days. They were all good players, uh, in my eyes. And uh, obviously, the best one of the lot was, um, or eventually, was the best one of the lot was Graham Leggett, who uh, went down south and uh, and and played down in in England. Yeah. Now, jockey, your father Willie played for the Dons between 
1935 and 1938, made 24 appearances uh, for the club, scored eight goals before making the move to Newcastle at the start of 1939. Although his time at Newcastle was cut short due to the outbreak of the Second World War, where he ended up being held as a prisoner of war, but still managed to get the occasional game of football and indeed scored a couple of goals famously in a Scotland versus England match, which Scotland won 5-0. But did your father, you know, because he'd played the game at professional level, did he have any kind of particular advice for you in terms of your own development when you were coming through as a youngster? Um, not in the in, in the, the not in the sense of the of a coach or or you know giving advice and, and coaching um, gave advice in terms of uh, working hard, uh, keep trying to do the right thing. And, uh, you know, in the days, I, I played as a, a right winger. And he just basically told me, you know, when you're trying to beat the fullback, uh, the first thing you do is um, you knock the ball past them and you race them for the ball. Yeah. And, you know, if, if you are quicker than him, then keep doing that. Don't try to be clever and try to dribble by them. Uh, do you know the straightforward thing and, uh, and and that kind of thing? So he he advised me on these little wee bits and pieces, but it was mainly uh, to get my head down and work hard. So let's fast forward a little bit. Um, you're playing for Scotland Schoolboys, and it's at this point that you begin to attract the attention of a number of clubs, and uh, ultimately it's Chelsea who secure your signature. And at the age of just 15 years old, uh, you make the move to London in the middle of the swinging 60s. What was it about Chelsea that attracted you to, to make the move there? Well, the, the main thing was that they, uh, two or three things. Um, they had just been promoted from the second division up to the English first division. I mean, obviously, this was pre-premiership yeah. uh, league times. The second thing was that they had a Scottish manager. And the third thing was that I had an offer to go to Man U, uh, but there was a young kid who had just broke into the first team by the name of George Best, <laughs> who I thought, well, I have no chance of uh, getting a look in there. So uh, I chose Chelsea, as I say, because they'd got promoted. And I thought if I could do well, uh, I might have a better chance of um, of making the grade there. So I I went down to London and um, had a great time. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it, uh, playing a regular uh, every week in the the youth team, um, and I, I I thought I had done very well uh, considering I, I was joint top goal scorer in the team for that season. I had played a number of games uh, and then I, I came home at, at, the, at the end of the season for a holiday, obviously buzzing, looking forward to going back the next season. Um, but unfortunately, that never happened. Yeah, that's right. I think I, I heard that you'd received a letter from Chelsea um, that summer indicating that, you know, they, you, you weren't needed to return again. Did they, did they give you any kind of particular reasons for them deciding that 
that they weren't interested in taking you back? None. None. <laughs> it was just uh it was just a letter to say more or less saying don't bother coming back. You know, we're, we we no longer require you. Um I had signed a three year contract, or so I thought. Um only to be told when when I phoned uh the manager after receiving the letter. Uh, only be told that I had signed an amateur forum and, uh, you know, they could tear that up at any time they wanted. So I, I obviously was um, was depressed, you know, with, the, the, with what happened. I was um, very, very disappointed in, uh, in, in the treatment, uh, especially being told by letter as yeah. opposed to, um, you know, being told face to face. So to say that I um, I, I was angry and um, not happy with uh, w- with the manager Tommy Doherty was an understatement. I can imagine. I can imagine. Um, let's move on from from Chelsea because a trial at Dundee comes up quite quickly after this. Um, on the 5th of August, 1964, you signed for the Dark Blues, who are at that point managed by Bob Shankly. And for our younger listeners listening in, at this time, Dundee are a team who are right at the pinnacle of the of the Scottish game. They'd been Division One champions just two seasons prior to this. They'd reached the semi-finals of the European Cup in 1963. They were runners-up in the Scottish Cup in the season before you joined them. So... What was it like for you to join a club who were, you know, very much in rude health at the top of the kind of the tree in Scotland, so to speak? And what was the dressing room like? Was it one that welcomed you in as a youngster? Well, I, I mean, first and foremost, I was delighted uh, to to get the offer um, to sign again for uh, or to sign for Dundee. Um, they had kind of uh, approached prior to me going to, to Chelsea. Uh, and I had, you know, obviously said that I was going down south. Um, so for them to come back and uh, and offer me um, pre-season training uh, and then play and what they had, uh, instead of having pre-match, uh, pre-season games, sorry, um, they had one game which... Uh, they called the public trial, which was which consisted of any trialists uh, that, and they made up, you know, one team of trialists. So if they had more, uh, they would go into another team, and that other team would be made up with uh, reserve players. So we had two teams, and then we played half an hour, and then came off, and then they chose a team of trialists to play against the, the reserve team. And then that was for another half hour. And then the third half hour was the reserves versus the first team. Okay. So I was fortunate that uh, I got to play in uh, all three halves. And, um, you know, to play against the, the first team who, uh, other than... Uh, Knowing that they had uh, won the league uh, three seasons earlier, uh, I didn't really know 
anything about them other than, as I said, this is prior to me going there for pre-season training. Mm-hmm. Um, but then during pre-season training, you get to know the the players and you get to um, to know what they're like and how good they are and, and that kind of thing. So to play against them uh, for half an hour and also to score a goal against Bert Slater, the goalkeeper, was, you know, was was great. Um, you know, I had been down in the dumps. Uh, I had come back from Chelsea. I had gone back to my um, my Aberdeen uh, Lads Club youth team uh, to play for them. And then, as I said, I get invited down to, to Dundee and then I, I go through and I play uh, against the first team and, and um, you know, I score a goal. Uh, and then the next day I get asked by Bob Shankly if if I would uh, sign on the, the dotted line and which I had no hesitation whatsoever. So that was the, you know, me back into the professional game again. And, you know, it was an opportunity for me that uh, I, I, I hoped a one day I would take, but I didn't realise that at the time that uh, how quickly it would come round. Absolutely. A first team debut for Dundee comes on the 26th of August, 1964, a League Cup group stage match at Dens Park against Motherwell, where I think Dundee were already knocked out of the tournament, I think, at this point. So Shankly decides to kind of play a, a team of, of, of youngsters, which includes a 16-year-old Jockey Scott. Can you remember much about that game itself, Jockey, or is it all a blur? And how did that feel, though, for you to be making a, a first professional start so soon after what had just happened at Chelsea? Yeah, well, it, it, it was uh, obviously, I mean, there were six, six of us youngsters uh, got put in the team that night. And it was on a Wednesday night. Uh, as you rightly said, we uh, we had been knocked out of the, the league section. So Bob Shankly blooded six of us to see what we could do and also give his first team players a, a rest for the the forthcoming game on the Saturday. It's a 6-0 win for Dundee against Motherwell. So there's yeah. obviously some talent coming through the ranks. It also means that you retain a a place in the team for a 3-1 home win over Aberdeen in the league before you then get your first goals for Dundee. A double in a 4-1 win over Dundee United at Tanadice. It's not a bad way to endear yourself to the Dundee fans, is it? Uh, no, no. Uh... And it, and it turned out, to be honest, uh, it turned out that uh, I I enjoyed the the derby game that much that I looked forward to it uh, the, to the two games every season, and uh, and I thought I handled myself well in the in the derbies, and uh, I loved scoring goals against them, <laughs> and it was um, something I did quite regular uh, in the derby games. Absolutely. Uh, Bob Shankly leaves Dundee in February 1965. So that's just obviously the February after you've you've signed at Dundee, replaced by Bobby, uh, Bobby's aunt. So, but Dundee do um, maintain some impressive form. You reach the League Cup final in 1967 and then the semi-finals of the 1967-68 Intercities Fairs Cup. And again, for our younger listeners, that um, eventually became the UEFA Cup and now is the Europa League, where... 
Leeds United, who were the eventual winners that season, um, beat Dundee in in the semi-finals 2-1 on aggregate. Did you enjoy those European games? Did you enjoy getting to test yourself against players from different countries? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was was an experience that obviously I hadn't uh, encountered before. Um, But yeah, it was... Uh, it was something different to the normal league games, uh, and it was it was good to you know to to test yourself as an individual and as a team player uh, against foreign opposition. And yeah, it was great. And then the semi final with uh, with Leeds, uh, I didn't play in the first game, but I played the full game in the second game, and. Uh, it was, you know, the Leeds team at that time was uh, Don Revy's team. Yeah. Uh, who were, you know, making a name for themselves down in England. And uh, and it just so happened that one of the my, my best mates at the time of uh, playing for the Scottish schoolboys was Eddie Gray. Okay. Uh, so, you know, it transpired that Eddie playing for Leeds and I was playing for for Dundee in that competition. So it was, it was good to, you know, to compete against them, uh, not directly against them, but in, in him being in the opposition. Uh, and it was good to catch up again because I hadn't seen him for uh, for a few years. So it was, um, that was good. The result wasn't good, obviously, that we got beat, but there was no disgrace in, uh, in losing to, uh, to a you know, Leeds United with the team they had in, in those days. Yeah, absolutely. Well, fast forward a little bit. Um, Dundee make it back to the League Cup final in 1973. You'd missed out the last time Dundee made it to the, the Cup final. This time you start, though, you play the full 90 minutes. Having missed the final in, in 67, it must have been a proud moment for you to get to play in a major Cup final for the first time. Oh, it was good. I mean, it was great. As a player, you you look forward to you know to the big games. Uh, you you always imagine one day you'll play in either in a cup final or you'll you know be involved in a, a league winning team. You'll have some kind of success. Um, so to you know for us to play in the league cup final in uh, in nineteen seventy three uh, was you know, it was great. Uh, and it was against Celtic. And we had had um, a number of cup ties against Celtic in the early 70s, you know, more in particular in the Scottish Cup. Mm-hmm. Uh, and which, you know, was always or always seemed to be a semi-final. And we, you know, once or twice, we took them to extra time. But unfortunately, we lost every one of them. And Celtic went on to play in the final of the Scottish Cup. Uh, so for us to to get get to a final, first of all, um, was was great. Uh, and then obviously to play against Celtic uh, and you know eventually beat them was uh, even greater. As you touched on, Dundee run out, won the winners in that one, becoming three-time League Cup winners in the process. Uh, I mean, on a personal level, obviously, it's really good from the team perspective. But for you, as an individual, 
how special a moment was it for you to get your hands on your first major trophy as a player? Oh, I mean, it's a, for any player, it's 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 great to have some kind of success uh, on the field. Um, but that that one uh, that one was uh, special um, from the point of view of it was you know the first honour. Um, our first cup final that we we had been involved in and, and or I had been involved in and won. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was great, but it was, you know, doubly great that, that uh, it was Celtic that we beat because as I said, the, 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 the previous few year of uh, losing to them in the, um, in the Scottish cup semifinals. So that was, um, that was very, very pleasing. During your time with Dundee, uh, or your first spell with Dundee anyway, this is where you pick up your two caps for Scotland as well. The first on the 9th of June, 1971, you come off the bench for the last 15 minutes in Copenhagen in place of Jim Forrest in a 1-0 defeat to Denmark in a European Championship qualifier. The second cap comes five days later in Moscow as you start and play the full 90 minutes during a 1-0 defeat to the uh, former USSR in a friendly match, playing alongside in that one, future Aberdeen teammates, Bobby Clark and Davy Robb. Obviously, it's the pinnacle of every player's career, isn't it, to play international football for, for your for your national team. For you, Jockey, and, and I guess for your family as well, how proud a moment is that just to get that level of international recognition? Oh, it was, um, uh, it was great. Uh, I mean, it, it came about uh, because, as you said, the... the we played Denmark the first game, and that was a European Championship game. Uh, but like um, like my my debut game against uh, for Dundee, sorry, uh, Scotland were out of the qualifying. So Bobby Brown, who was the manager, uh, picked a squad, but unfortunately for him, uh, a few of the players decided they didn't want to go. And these were, you know, like big name players that didn't want to go. So he had to sort of revise the squad and he brought in younger players, of which I was one of them, uh, which was very, very fortunate for me. And, uh, but it was great. And uh, the experience was, was wonderful. And uh, to play... You know, to, to actually start a game and play the 90 minutes uh, as I did in the friendly against Russia um, was brilliant. And I looked forward to, to more of it. Um, <laughs> but unfortunately, that didn't come because uh, Bobby Brown, uh, unfortunately, uh, got sacked after that. And uh, lo and behold, the next manager was my first professional football manager, uh, Tommy Doherty, <laughs> who obviously had, uh, had a disliking to, and uh, he obviously had a disliking to me as well. So I, I, that was the end of my Scotland career, I'm afraid. So, Jockey, listen, I mean, you're, you're revered um, at Dundee, a, a, a legend in, in the eyes of, of every Dundee fan, but this is an Aberdeen podcast, so we're not going to spend the whole time talking about Dundee. Um, so we're going to fast forward to the summer of 1975. 
by the time August rolls around, I mean, you're a first team mainstay at Dundee, a real hero of the support we've just touched on. You've made 402 appearances for Dundee at this point, scoring 150 goals for them. So tell us, how did the move to Aberdeen come around at this point? Uh, well, I mean, it, it came as a surprise to me. I got uh, I got called in to the manager's office and uh, was told that Aberdeen were interested in signing me and uh, and Dundee had accepted that, had accepted an offer uh, and it was up to myself. Um, and to be honest, I had... I had no hesitation and um, and accepting uh, Jimmy Bonthron's offer to to join Aberdeen, and um, it was only uh, maybe a few months later, uh, once I, I sort of sat down and thought about it and had a chat with uh, with one or two of the my ex Dundee colleagues mm-hmm. um, that. It was possibly a situation where I was I was getting sold because uh, as a not because they wanted they, they they felt I wasn't good enough for them, but um, because it was a punishment. Yeah, I've I've read about this as well. So this is to do with the celebrations after that League Cup win, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. We I mean, as players, we we had worked in the the, the early seventies or prior to Jim McLean heading to Dundee United, he was assistant manager with uh, John Prentice. Mm-hmm. And um, he educated us in terms of, you know, lots of things about the game. Uh, he got us really fit. Uh, his knowledge of the game was very excellent. His ability to, you know, to sort of change things about during a game tactically was you know different to what we had been used to and it was a, a really good insight into football mm-hmm. and um, after winning the league cup uh, we went back to uh, the Angus Hotel in the centre of Dundee for our reception uh, had a meal and a few drinks and uh, one of the players decided uh you know, said to us, we need to go and see Wee Jim. So six of us went down to see Wee Jim along with our wives and uh, surprised them. And uh, unfortunately, uh, within, we didn't know at the time, but uh, that was us sort of in the bad books of the manager, one by one uh, over a period of, something like a year, maybe slightly more than a year. Uh, one by one, we we left the club. And as I say, it wasn't until after leaving and then we got together again, the players, and and, uh, and sort of realised, wait a minute, we, you know, we were all good good players and, and good first-team players with uh, uh, first-team regular players with Dundee. Yeah, and one by one we we suddenly get out of the club by being sold or being free transfer or that kind of thing. So it was good, you know. It turned out a good uh, a good move for myself uh, going back home, going to Aberdeen, who excellent club, uh, and had 
you know, a better a better team than than we did at Dundee at that particular time. You kind of join an Aberdeen team that's going through uh, at this point. Uh, let's call it a transition, will we? Because um, Jimmy Bonthorne had been in charge since taking over from uh, Eddie Turnbull in 1971, but that 75-76 campaign gets off to a, a bad start. Uh, we're out of the League Cup in the group stages. Um, there's early defeats to Dundee and Motherwell in the league before Dundee United, of all teams, visit Pataudry for what probably ends up being one of the more infamous games in in Aberdeen history from one perspective. I mean, you actually score your first goal for Aberdeen in this one, but it's a game that's probably remembered more for the reaction of Willie Young to being substituted. He storms off the park, flings his jersey at um, Bond thrown before storming out of the ground. It's his last appearance for the club. With the club at this point anchored to the bottom of the table, you must have been wondering, what the hell have I just joined here? Uh, not really, no. <laughs> I mean, at, at, uh, we we had good players uh, at Pittori. Um Just one of these things, we got off to a bad start. And, uh, you know, whether it be that, that, that we deserve to lose games and uh, at that time of the season uh, or not, I don't know. But we, we didn't, as you say, start well. And then, you know, uh, I, I forgot all about that that game where, where Wally stormed off and never to be seen again, more <laughs> or less. But yeah, these things happen in football and, and uh, the time, they're, uh, they're not nice. They're not, they, you know, they're not good for... Uh, team spirit um, but it, it goes the other way as well that um, you know players get together and and, uh, and have their own kind of uh, meeting with regards to we've got to stick together and we've got to pull together and we've got to do better than you know than, than what we've been doing and you know run the extra yard and, and that kind of thing as it is, results don't really improve at this point. Um, and after a 2-1 home defeat to Celtic that you score in as well, Jockey, uh, Jimmy Bonthorne resigns from his post uh, with the Dons joint bottom of the table with St. Johnston. After three games with George Murray and caretaker charge, uh, Aberdeen win two of those three, actually, including a 2-0 win over Dundee at Pataudry, in which, again, you open the scoring in that one. The announcement comes through that Ali McLeod's been selected by the board of directors to take on the manager's position. Uh, just tell us, Jockey, we spoke to a few guys who worked under Ali McLeod, but what were your first impressions of the new manager? Um, well, first of all, go back to, to Jimmy Bonthron. Um, Jimmy, I had met uh, previously when I, when I represented Scotland on that uh, Russian trip. Okay. Uh, Jimmy was uh, helping uh, Bobby Brown at the time. Okay, and uh, so I, I I had an insight to Jimmy then as to uh, how uh, much of a gentleman he was, how good a coach he was. That part also helped for for me going to Aberdeen. Um, unfortunately for Jimmy, he probably was too nice to be a manager. Uh, he probably better. Uh, being and and I heard all the stories when Eddie Turnbull was at Pittori and Jimmy was his number two. Uh, how good Jimmy was in terms of being a buffer between 
Eddie Turnbull, who was a bit vociferous, uh, and you know between Eddie and and the players, um, and I think uh, Jimmy was the type of guy who worried about things, and obviously you know the results weren't good, and he decided he he would you know step down and and let someone else mm-hmm. take over, which was. You know, disappointing for the players. Um, we were sad to see him go uh, because I say he was a, he, he was a gentleman. Mm-hmm. But these things happen in football, and and then as you said, Ali came in, <laughs> and uh, Ali was different, very different. Ali was more um, enthusiastic, more. Uh, Oh, what could I say? More um, trying to to cajole the players and uh, and and get them up and and you know get them uh, their spirits high and get them g'd up before going out on the pitch, as opposed to actual coaching as to you know the the tactical part, that kind of thing. Yeah, but he he was. He was such an, an enthusiast and he wanted to win all the time. And um, just the way he went about it, as I said, was totally different. And uh, it certainly, you know, fired the players up. And, you know, we, we started to do a lot, a, a bit better. But it was uh, it was an experience. <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, somewhat characteristically straight out the gate he promises the Aberdeen fans a trophy um, but the immediate concern is obviously trying to sort out the league form which he does in fairness there's back-to-back wins at home to Rangers and then away to Celtic which set the side off on an unbeaten run right the way through December and January there's a bit of a hairy period towards the end of the campaign which means that Aberdeen escape relegation by the skin of our teeth goal difference meaning that the three-way tie of teams on 32 points saw your former side Dundee take the drop alongside Tayside rivals St. Johnston. For you, though, Jockey, it's an impressive start to life at Pataudry. You make 37 appearances in that first season, scoring 15 goals. You must have been pretty satisfied on a on a personal level about how things had been for yourself, even if perhaps the team performances hadn't quite been there. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I was used to... Uh, Obviously, used to playing regular at Dundee. Uh, I was used to scoring goals uh, every season. Uh, I I always targeted twenty goals per season, and it was you know, I mean that was that was my aim. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you do it, sometimes you don't. But uh, it was yeah, I was I was I was very pleased that that. Um, I was a regular at Petodre, uh, and the fact that I was able to contribute by by scoring goals. The the following season, the 1976-77 season, it gets off to a flying start for the side. But at this point, um, game time's a bit limited for you at the start of that season. Was this an injury issue, or was it a case of Ali McLeod trying to figure out his preferred setup up front because he'd also brought Joey Harper back to the club at the end of the previous season? Yeah, well, he, 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 I mean, in fairness to, to Ali, he brought in uh, a few new f- uh, faces who, you know, fitted into the team and 
and did well. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, we used to work in training, Ali, when he first came. And as I said earlier, he, he, I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't, uh, you know, one of these coaches who, you know, did step by step by step by step and 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 things like that. But he he he, he wanted to play four four two. Yeah. Okay. He decided that myself and Drew Jarvey uh, were going to play up front, and he brought young Joe Smith into the team. Mm-hmm. And uh, Joe was a, a midfield player, good ability, good passer of the ball. But he was a good, you know, uh, passer of the ball, either short or long passes. But Ali wanted Joe, when he got the ball, that he, he had to take a touch, look up. And at that point, Drew and I had to uh, do a crossover run which meant that if, if, if Drew was inside right and I was inside left, then I had to run to inside right and Drew to run to inside left. And this was like run diagonally and forward. Okay. And then Joe had to pick one of us out with a ball over the top and for us to get onto it and then, you know, everybody else get up behind it. Yeah. So that was that – was, one of the things that stuck in my head for many, many years uh, about Ali's sort of coaching, mm-hmm. that, you know, it was Casey, give the ball to Joe, you two run, get the ball forward and then get up behind and then we take it from there. Uh, of course, Drew and I, we weren't, uh, in their days, we weren't the youngest. So by the end of it, this is just a training session. We were knackered uh, doing all these runs. But it just so happened that at, uh, at times it, it worked a treat on the pitch uh, against opposition and uh, and we scored goals through it. And then other other things which which was brilliant, which we still have a, a, a laugh and joke about it, was uh, the training that we did with Ali in the, the car park <laughs> uh, across from, on the on the gravel, across yeah. from uh, Petodre. And, I mean, it would be a warm-up. George Murray would take us for a warm-up. And then Ali would say, right, two teams at eight or nine, depending on how many was training. And all you did was you, you played a game. But within that game, Ali would come out with... Uh, different rules <laughs> and one of them you know like simple things like you could only pass the ball forward right okay <laughs> if you passed it back the way it was a free kick to the opposition another thing would be uh, you had to dribble past a man before you could pass the ball <laughs> you know if you passed the ball you had to do an overlap right okay. and it didn't matter whether you passed it 60 yards, you still had to do an overlap of 60 <laughs> yards. And, you know, we thought at the time it was just, Ali just did it just for the sake of um, putting us out there and, and doing a training session. Uh, but the more we we started playing games on a Saturday, 
And the more that we started introducing all these things into the game on a Saturday, yeah, you realised, well, wait a minute, Ali wasn't so daft uh, after all. Uh, he maybe didn't coach the way that, for instance, Jim McLean coached, uh, but he got the best out of you uh, by doing all these things on a daily basis uh, in the training, which subconsciously you took into the game on a Saturday and did them without thinking on a Saturday uh, and ended up getting us the results. Um, you know, and, and and ended up getting us uh, playing well and, and good performances at the same time. Yeah, so, I mean, we kind of touched on it a little bit in and out of the team to begin with, but there's a League Cup quarter-final replay with Sterling Albion on the 18th of October, which is at your old stomping ground at Dens Park that sees you really kind of back in the, the starting lineup much more consistently. You get the opener in that replay as the Dons set up a semi-final with Rangers at Hamden, which I think it's fair to say, Jockey, we might have to say it goes down as being your finest game in a red shirt. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> so going into that semi-final um, against Rangers, Aberdeen had beaten Celtic on the previous Saturday. So presumably spirits and confidence are high in the camp that we can go to Hamden and, and book a return for the final a couple of weeks later. Oh, we were we were um, very confident that we could win the game. We felt that the way we were playing at that particular time uh, and... You know, we were a good attacking team. Mm -hmm. uh, but we, you know, defensively, we started to do well also. Uh, and we, as I said, we were very confident. And then, you know, we got off to a very good start. We scored early on. And that gave us a big, big boost. And uh, we just, you know, went on from there. Going into that game, Aberdeen hadn't won a League Cup semi-final since 1955. We'd only won one semi-final in any competition since uh, 1970. So the bookmakers would have probably had Rangers favourites for this one going into the game. What can you kind of remember about Ali McLeod's approach to this semi-final? Well, Ali's approach was the same uh, in every game. It didn't matter uh, whether it was a league game or a cup or a cup game. Um, it was just uh, his, you know, the way his team talk was was exactly the same as as every week, and it was more about you know what we had to do as individuals, what we had to do as a team, uh, and he, you know it was more or less just getting us uh, hyper and you know sort of bursting to get out on that pitch to get playing. And, um, I mean, as I said, that Ali wasn't really one for, you know, the, the, the tactical, if, if the opposition do this, then we do this. If the, the opposition are poor here, we do this. It was more about his enthusiasm, his attitude, mm -hmm. and the attitude that we had to show, the willingness to work hard, uh, the willingness to play for each other, um, you know, and uh, he just got us up there and, you know, as I said, bursting to get out. And then uh, when you go on the pitch, then it, 
it's entirely up to you as a individual player and uh, as a collective part of the team. And uh, as I said, we we got off to a good start and scored early, and that settled us. And uh, and then we just you know took it from there. Yeah, let's talk about this game in a bit of detail, Jockey, because it is it's the Jockey Scott Show. A double from you in the opening 14 minutes. Just talk us through those first two goals, if you can remember much about them. The first one comes on just two minutes. Uh, a clinical counter-attack, fine work by Dom Sullivan on the right. His ball in is perfect to allow you to finish first time past Kennedy. And then the second's even better. A really good one-two between yourself and uh, Arthur Bumper Graham sees you free in the box. Finishes brilliant, high the roof of the net. You must have been pinching yourself at, at this point. Oh, really? Because I, as I said, I, I I was used to scoring goals anyway. So obviously, it, you know, it was they were special because of the occasion of being a semi final, and uh, I had I had known uh, the 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 disappointment of losing semi finals often, as I previously said, uh, you know, against Celtic. Um, so you know, to score the the first two goals for us to get uh, a two 0 lead, uh, you know, was was obviously great, and uh, and I mean the the goals were decent as well, as you said the the first one Dom who had a, a you know very good stamina uh, played in a great ball and I just made a, a run at the right time and and uh, connected with it uh, well enough for it. To, to go in the net. Uh, the second one, I won two uh, and I finish. Uh, and then my third one was a, a free kick that we had um, that we had worked on during the week prior to the game that I ran over a ball or, or I was on the end of the, the, the wall and we, Joe, took it and played it in to someone and it was laid off in behind the wall. By this time, I've turned and, and ran onto it and, and put it in the net again. So it was great uh, to score a hat-trick. Uh, it was great to win the game. But as I constantly get told by my mate, Drew Jarvey, uh, he scored the best goal of the of the, the, the semi-final. <laughs> so my three didn't matter. <laughs> There's loads to take out of that. First of all, I love how understated you are about the first two goals, that they were decent. The second one's a brilliant goal. The second goal's a, fin- a fantastic goal. If, if somebody scores that goal in today's day and age, you'd be replaying that on you know YouTube and Twitter and everything for days on end. Um, yeah, it's let's give Drew his due. I mean, the, the fourth goal's a good goal. I mean, it's let's not pretend otherwise, but... When we go 4-1 up, you must have been thinking there, come on, just one more chance for me. Just one more chance for me. A hat trick would be a lovely way to finish this off. No, to be honest, when you're when you're, you're playing the game, you know, you, you, you just want to score goals. You know, you, you, you know when you're playing well and you know when the, if opportunities come along, uh, you know you, when you're playing well and when you're liable to you know, which games you're liable to score more so than other games. And as I, as I said earlier about uh, I loved scoring goals against Dundee United, I think I'm right in saying that 
against Rangers and against Dundee United, they're the two teams I scored most goals against um, in any seasons. Excellent. I mean, there's there's no better way to to, to make yourself a favourite in the Aberdeen support than by scoring goals against Rangers and United. That's that's fair to say. Um, the hat trick does come. You touched on it a minute ago. It's a really well worked free kick. You get the ball about ten yards out, finish it low past Kennedy to seal the hat trick. Um, a five one win over Rangers at Hamden is any Aberdeen fan's dream. For an Aberdeen fan to play in it to score a hat trick just must be. Unbelievable, but at this point, you touched on it earlier on. It's all very well getting to finals, but it's winning finals that counts, isn't it? Oh yeah. And into that final we go um, against Celtic just a couple of weeks later. Now we we go behind to a Kenny Dalglish penalty after eleven minutes. Um, after your pal Drew with the with the foul on Kenny Dalglish, um, does he still get a wee bit of stick about that one, Drew? Uh, well, we did give him stick. Uh, <laughs> You know, throughout the years, uh, not so much now, but we did at the time. But we only did it because we, you know, we had won the cup. Yeah, of course. Had we not won the cup, then we probably wouldn't have given them as much stick as what we actually did. (laughs) Of course, there must have been, was there a bit of a sense of dread about the fact that, you know, this is a Celtic team who at this point, full of experience in cup finals, winning cup finals, winning titles, to fall behind so early in a cup final to them or is it an opportunity as a player where you go, okay, well, we've got 80 minutes to to recover from this. Let's just roll our sleeves up and get going again. Yeah, but we um, uh, we, we were uh, we were confident. Um, you know, when when your, your players or, or your uh, the, the team is, is confident and their own ability and confident in each other's ability, then you're always you've always got a chance of winning the game. And we were always, you know, we thought we're good enough uh, to beat Celtic. Um, obviously, we didn't want to go to extra time as it turned out, but uh, we were confident we could we could beat them. Um, and we we just kept plugging away and plugging away, and then uh, eventually. Drew scored to make it one all, and then before we know where we are, we're we're into extra time, and then the rest is history. David dreamt that he, he was going to come on the pitch and and uh, and win <laughs> the game, and he did. He did, but who was it that swung the ball in the box? I don't know. It was Jockey Scott. Oh, was it? <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. It's the perfect start to extra time, isn't it? It's just two minutes in. The ball comes up to yourself on the right-hand flank. Uh, after a fine bit of work by uh, Arthur Graham, as I recall, a fine Maisie run up the middle of the park. The ball comes across. Davy Robs sneaking in at the back post to pop it home. Um, Celtic tried to turn the screw for the remainder of that extra time. I mean, was that, what was that, the last 28 minutes? Is that the longest period you've ever had on a, a football pitch, would you say? Oh, well, I mean, you're... There were there were times in the in, in the game, you know, uh, after we had scored and, and went ahead, there were times in the game where we were under a lot of pressure, and Celtic attacking, attacking, and I mean I can't remember a, a great deal about it, uh, but I'm sure uh, Bobby Clark must have had two or three good saves uh, during that period. Um, but as I say, we were we were confident we could get a result. 
we worked hard toward getting the, to, towards getting that result, uh, and in the end, we we did it. And um, uh, you know, it was it was great. It was great for the players uh, because, as you said, uh, the the previous season uh, we had, you know, we were had almost got relegated. Yeah. Um, so for us to to turn it around and and come through from you know almost relegation to going and and winning the first trophy of the of the season, um, you know, was was, was great. I think as well, I, I think it's an important trophy actually in the history of Aberdeen Football Club, full stop, that one. Um, it's the first trophy we win since the 1970 Scottish Cup. It is Willie Miller's first ever um, major trophy as captain. Obviously, Willie goes on to do incredible things as a player for Aberdeen, lifting trophies all over the place. You're one of the very first players that Ali McLeod actually comes to on the park to celebrate with if you watch the footage back again. Ali must have been absolutely bursting with pride and delight as well about this. He'd kept his promise of um of of giving the Aberdeen supporters a trophy. Oh, I mean, he was he was over the moon, uh, as as we all were, and it, I mean, it it was great for him. And as you said, he he, you know, I mean, Ali used to say a lot of things publicly, <laughs> uh, and you know, unfortunately, that that. Uh, Became his downfall as well, um, mm-hmm. you know, with regards to the 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 in later years with the Scotland setup uh, that he promised the Scottish fans that uh, we would go and do this, that, and the next thing, and as everybody now knows, it didn't happen. Um, so yeah, for him to you know to to predict that he was going to uh, bring a trophy to Petorre of some sort. Uh, and it actually happened. Then, um, yeah, he was he, he he was brilliant. And for you, jockey, just on a personal level as well, you've obviously you've won the league cup already with Dundee. But was there something just that little bit more special about doing it with your hometown team, the team you supported as a boy? Oh yeah, I mean it was uh, it, it was great to um, you know obviously come in and, and playing at Petore, uh was a big thing. Because I'll be honest with you, Aberdeen, uh, when I was a, a schoolboy, I trained at Aberdeen with Terry Scott on uh, a couple of evenings a week. Yeah. Um, so when I when I played for Scotland Schoolboys and uh, and clubs were asking me to sign, uh, obviously Aberdeen were one of them. And uh, it was my dad, actually, that... that Said to me, he didn't want he didn't want me at at such a young age to sign for Aberdeen, for the the only reason being that he felt that a local lad, if he doesn't do well, receives more uh, abuse and stick from the fans than other ones do, and at the time I didn't you know that that. Didn't uh, didn't concern me because I, I I was looking at going down south anyway. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think once I, I did sign for Aberdeen and uh, you know and you get involved with it and you're on the pitch and you hear the fans, you know, at times when things are not going well, 
it does appear to be that the local guys get a bit more, not abuse, but a bit more of the stick than uh, than than the rest of them do. So, you know, to, to go and be successful and uh, and winning a cup uh, was obviously great because you're not getting abuse, you're getting you're getting the praise that comes with it. Yeah, I think I think that's probably a fair comment as well, actually, Jockey. I think you see that a lot still now that um, young lads who come through the system, who are local lads especially, I think they get the praise and they get the hype a lot quicker if they come in and do things really well. But at the same time, I think people still to this day potentially do you know knock the the younger players who are locals a little bit um, a little bit harder sometimes as well. I think it still happens to this day, to be honest. Um, Going back to that season, true to his word, it's a much improved season from Ali McLeod and, and, and the Aberdeen team. We eventually finished third that season, which was a huge in, improvement on the season before. Um, but your time with the club on the playing side now is, is kind of starting to come to an end. Ali McLeod moves on from the club to take the Scotland job at the end of that season. He's replaced by Billy McNeil. You only make one appearance under McNeil, which turns out to be your last appearance in a red shirt. It's a 2-1 home defeat to Hibs in the Premier Division. You come off the bench for Drew Jarvie for the last five minutes. Was this just an issue with, was it an injury issue trying to keep you at the team or was it a case of McNeil coming in and just having his own ideas about who he wanted to play? Um, no, uh, Billy Billy took over as manager and uh, he kind of made it plain that I wasn't one of his uh, favourites and that okay. um, he wasn't a... He wasn't going to be. I wasn't going to be one of his first choices. Put it that way. Okay. Um, a lot of times, uh, I would be left back at Petodre when it was an away game and I was playing in the reserves. You know, and that was it. Was disappointing. You know, to to finish up that way rather than you know finish up another way. You know where I was. You know where I had been doing well and and. I got transferred because I had done well, um, but it was more uh, Billy made it plain that I wasn't part of his uh, his scheme of things, and uh, and that I, I was welcome to to leave, but I didn't at the time. Uh, I, I told him no, I wanted to stay and, and fight for a place, uh, which I did for a few weeks, but then eventually Tommy Gemmell. Uh, had got in touch and um, and wanted to, to re-sign me for Dundee again. You end up, though, making the move from Aberdeen to Seattle Sounders. So how did that move come about? And what was it like playing on the west coast of the US in a league at the time that's got some real international superstars, including, uh, I guess, most notably, Pelly at the New York Cosmos? Yeah, well, it, it, it transpired that uh, the the manager at Seattle... Uh, was Jimmy Gabriel and Jimmy was an ex-Dundee player uh, ex-Everton player Southampton player uh, and he had, had moved over to America to, and, and finished his career over there um, and and now found himself uh, the head coach of Seattle Sounders and Jimmy's best mate at the time uh, remember, this was a, a this was back in '77. Yeah. Uh, and Jimmy's best mate was uh, a Dundee guy uh, by the name of Jimmy Johnson. And Jimmy had moved out to uh, America 
you know, a, a lot of years previous. And his dad, Jimmy Johnson's dad, lived in Brote Ferry. Uh, and he had recommended to, to his son to have a word with Jimmy Gabriel uh, and recommended myself and Gordon Wallace uh, to go over to and play for Seattle. Uh, so that's how it, uh, it transpired. Gordon, he went in, uh, in 1976. I went in 1977. And we both went in 1978. So, I mean, that's how the move came about. Uh, but once I got there, uh, it was, you know, obviously a, a totally different scene to uh, back home here. Uh, and I loved it. I, I, I thought it was great. Uh, we played, uh, we played in a, a indoor arena, uh, seated fifty-eight thousand, uh, when full, at the AstroTurf, and that's the first time I, I'd ever encountered playing on AstroTurf. Uh, unfortunately, it was the the old kind of AstroTurf, which was like concrete underneath. Yeah, and just a carpet laid on top. Uh, I loved it. It suited my game well, but unfortunately, I, I, I didn't. I didn't realise the effect it was going to have on my body. Yeah, because after I finished at Seattle in '78, uh, by that time I had gone back to Dundee, and uh, and I, Jimmy Gabriel, had, had wanted to to keep me permanent, but I. And I was, you know, would have been happy to to go there, uh, but Dundee, uh, as usual, uh, decided that they wanted money for me, and uh, Seattle weren't going to pay money, uh, so that that move fell down. Um, as I say, uh, with regards to the AstroTurf, uh, uh, had consequences on me and on the on my back. I mean, I didn't play many games when I went back to Dundee because I was uh, I was bothered with uh, a back injury and what you had to uh, for what you had to get um, an operation mm-hmm. uh, to eventually allow me to to be able to run about and uh, you know kick the ball again. But I never got back to you know anything like the levels that I'd I'd been used to playing at. Yeah, I mean you're right. That that old astroturf was just so unforgiving um, on on any joints, but especially the kind of lower back as well. If you were susceptible yeah. to that sort of area, um, just on a let's let's just look positively. Thought the time at the Sounders as well. You 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 reached the the soccer bowl final of 1977, which was effectively the kind of season finale there against the New York Cosmos. There's a Famous, famous photo of you with Pele grabbing at your shirt after a nutmeg by yours truly. Uh, not a bad moment for the family scrapbook, being fouled by one of arguably the greatest of all time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it, 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 at that time when, when I was out in Seattle, there were um, a number of uh, first-class uh international legends going about. Um, you know, like Pele was there, Carlos Alberto, uh, Beckenbauer, George Best, Cruyff, 
I mean, you name them, they were they were all playing there in the in in the NASL. And I mean to you know to to play against these guys, just be on the same pitch with them, uh, was a, a fantastic experience. And uh well Pele, I I have always thought Pele was was and to me the best player in the world. And you know, to, as I said, to play against them, uh, to be on the pitch with them, just to see some of the things. He, even though he was at the end of his career, he still did things on the pitch with the ball, you know, his control, his ability to score goals. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. So for me to to be able to say uh, I nutmegged him and, and he's fouled me because I, I, I did that to him then, uh, it, you know, it's a it's a proud moment for me. It's great as well that's been captured, isn't it? You know, it's like often these things they never get quite captured by like photos or whatever. But it's a fantastic, fantastic photo that one. But you kind of touched on it again there, jockey. After that stint in the states, you returned you to Dundee, where you feature for a couple of seasons. But but that injury that you you, you kind of pick up and having to manage really kind of starts to to come to the fore. You end up retiring from the playing side of the game at the end of the 1980-81 season. And it's after that that the coaching journey for you begins. And we're going we're gonna to come on to that in part two of our chat next week with you. But let's just quickly recap your time at Aberdeen as a player in your three seasons with the club. Uh, 67 appearances in total. 22 goals, a hat-trick in a League Cup semi-final against Rangers and a League Cup winner in 1976. All for the club that you supported as a boy. You've got to be fairly happy with that, notwithstanding the way that things perhaps ended on on the playing side for you. Oh yeah, yeah. I was I was delighted to um, I was delighted to play for Aberdeen. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Enjoyed playing with the players I played with at Petodre. The chairman at Petodre at that particular time, who was still chairman when when I went back there in the coaching capacity. Uh, was absolutely brilliant, and you know he did everything for the club. Now it was great to, to as a player and coach to work, you know, for him and under his uh, under his authority. And um, the managers, as I said, Jimmy Bonthron, a lovely man. Uh, I like Jimmy, very good coach. By big contrast, Ali, vociferous. Brash did things his way, uh, but um, they worked. And uh, and then Billy, I mean, I, I I didn't have any grievances with Billy. I, I got on very well with Billy uh, as a player, and when I went into coaching, and uh, and Billy finished and his uh, managerial career, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I had no grievances with him at Petorre. He was a manager. He didn't think that I uh, I was going to do any good for him, uh, and these things happen. So I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Petodre as a player. I just wish uh, that I'd maybe moved there earlier, mm. so that I had longer a longer uh, period at Petodre. But it wasn't to be. So, um, but it was good at the time. Uh, and fond memories top man jockey we'll we'll leave it here I think it's been a pleasure a privilege to get to talk to you today and um, we look forward to catching up 
with you next time to talk about your return to Aberdeen, but this time in the dugout alongside Alex Smith and your old mucker, Drew Jarvey. Jockey Scott, thanks very much for taking the time to join us on the ABZ Football Podcast. Okay, Gary, thank you. And so that wraps up this week's episode of the ABZ Football Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Please remember to like, subscribe, follow, or whatever on your podcast. Player of choice, not Spotify, obviously. Join us next week for episode 63, where we'll preview the return of one, Derek McInnes, Tony Doherty, and Ash Taylor. And Kyle Lafferty. Yes. I've not seen him for a while. No, we've not. We've not. As they return to Pataudry, as Kamarnik travel north. And we bring you part two of our interview with Jockey Scott. We look forward to seeing you then. Stand free. Go on, Boris. <laughs> <laughs> This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast was brought to you in association with Siberia Bar and Hotel on Belmont Street, Aberdeen. Head into the bar, quote the phrase ABZ Pod, that's ABZ Pod, for a £3 pint of Foster's, £4 pint of Moretti, or £5 pint of Fierce any day of the week, including match days. Siberia is open seven days a week, all year round, and the bar is located only 30 seconds walk from the nearest bus stop taking supporters to Stadium for free on match days. Come on, you Reds.